God works through the agency of people. God works through the intermediaryness of circumstances. God provides opportunities that come your way and voices that will either affirm or bring concern to you on the decisions that you make. The most important advice I can give to you, I urge you to carefully begin every day on your knees before God. What I suggest to you is when you begin your day with God, you will find that you are entering the day first with His voice. That is important for you to navigate through the decisions by reading His Word and hearing from Him. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And I'm Gons. Welcome to the show. This is episode number 52. So there's a lot of different ways to listen to Canary Cry Radio. You got iTunes, you got Stitcher, um, something called Uplayer, uh, (laughs) or you may be just downloading straight from canarycryradio.com. Now, with each one of those ways, there's some things that you can do that will help us out tremendously. If you're listening from your iTunes on your phone or on the computer, make sure to go and give us five-star rating yeah. and also leave us a nice review and let other people know why we're so awesome. Yeah, and those things really help us out to get noticed in the search engine type thing. And we want to get up there and we want to... Spread the word. Yeah, because there's a lot of shows out there, quite frankly. And they have a lot of of five stars and a lot of reviews. And so we're just going to catch up. Also, Stitcher, for those of you Stitcher people, um, you can give us a thumbs up. Absolutely. And there you go. And no matter how you're listening, just, you know, reach out to your software provider and let them know. That were so cool by giving us thumbs up and reviews and all those things. For sure. Okay, moving on. Um, we've got a lot of responses from episode 50, the Catherine Dahlstrom interview, the Children of Angels Nephilim series. Was it 50 and or was it 51? I think that was 51. You're right. <laughs> yep, episode 51, Catherine Dahlstrom uh, if you haven't listened to it, make sure to go do that. There's been a lot of responses. Yeah, definitely. And if you uh, want to join in on the conversation, jump on to canarycryradio.com. You can go to the listen tab and go look for episode 51 and you can join the comment section or you can go to our forum. Forum. Go to the forum. Join it. Become a member of the community and make sure to say hi to everybody and let us know who you are, how you're doing, and then jump in and tell us what you think. Yeah. Also, Facebook is Oh, wait, is before there. you go on, though. Okay, not I just have on. a little message for those in the forum. Okay. All right, so if you're already in the forum, I took care of the spammers. <laughs> I, spammers. I, I, I smacked the spammers away. So, spammers have been smitten. Yeah, so hopefully no more of those random posts about you know, handbags or whatever. The fake Gucci bags and all that stuff. You know, we all, we all have, 
enough Gucci bags. Who needs more? <laughs> right. I know Gons has too many. I wear mine around <laughs> like it's going out of style. Weirdo. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. We mentioned Facebook. Go do that. Yeah, say hi. Give us a like and um, talk and yeah, stuff. Yeah, we, we just passed 600 likes on Facebook. So Boom. thank you. You know what? That's awesome. Yeah. And it's not paid either. You know, you it's can pay paid. for likes. Isn't that ridiculous? Um, you know, I, I, I guess. I, I mean, it, <laughs> yes, it is ridiculous. But I mean, whatever you got to do, man. I guess. I don't know. I think if we were like selling handbags or something, I would, <laughs> I would pay for likes. All right. Okay. So a few weeks ago, we added a voicemail feature to canarycryradio.com. And it took you guys a little while to figure out how to use it. But lo and behold, you have. And we have some awesome voice messages from some listeners. And we're going to listen to them and respond to them. And, you know, we only got a time for a few. There are more of you who have left uh, messages. So if you don't hear yours, you know, you're in the bullpen. So absolutely. So come on back. All right. So we're going to start out with a voice message from a Mr. Uh, Johnny Fram, a Canary Cry veteran. He's been around listening and posting for a while. And let's hear what he has to say. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Johnny here uh, from London. Uh, so I was just thought I'd ask. So the thought occurred to me concerning sleep paralysis, and I was thinking, okay, so if these these kind of these demons, these beings, these kind these kind of ghoulish creatures that come along and do all kinds of things to people in sleep paralysis, if they are if they are demons or interdimensional beings, whatever, why is it that they tend towards harm? Wouldn't it make more sense to I don't know, be a little bit more kind of but I suppose you kind of got the slucky by, which kind of perhaps would be perceived as more positive or maybe, I don't know, trans- transcendent beings and the, the kind of the ancient grandmasters talking to Blavatsky, that kind of thing. But I, I don't know if it's an interesting point you guys want to think of, want to think of talking about. If not, no biggie. and um, it's a bit rambling. But I uh, hope you guys are well and uh, take it easy. Johnny, that is an excellent point to bring up. And I think I'll start by saying I have a lot of personal experience actually with sleep paralysis. And it, it, there's a lot of mystery still surrounding this subject. Uh, if anybody remembers back in the L.A. Marzulli episode, um, I brought up my experiences with sleep paralysis and I kind of got the normal... Um, you know, the, it's, it's a demonic experience and it's happening because you have sin in your life and things like that. And that may be the case, but it didn't really resonate with me. But it's very interesting. I, I will say I don't think uh, when it's happening, you don't really feel it's a very benevolent experience. Uh, for those of you who have experienced sleep paralysis, you know it's a very scary thing. For those of you not familiar with sleep paralysis, it's this phenomenon that's very well documented happening to people all over the world, which is uh, you're asleep and suddenly you wake up, but you're unable to move, you're paralyzed, um, you can't really see that well, you can't speak, and it you feel a presence with you in the room. Um, a lot of times people report that they feel like 
there's something sitting on them or something um, interacting with their body in some way. And um, it's been a, 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 a big subject of discussion on what exactly is happening. Now, we start off with, you know, it's a demonic presence. It's, it's uh, something negative and something is sort of preying on you while you sleep. And that's, I would say, the, the most generally accepted um, explanation. Right. But, um, but Johnny, you know, he, Johnny throws in a little twist. Yeah, he does. He talks about... Uh, you know, transcendent beings and, you know, maybe more of an angelic type of thing. You know, I, uh, where I am not ready to say whether it is a demon or, or a, you know, an angel on the good side or some other sort of spiritual presence, it definitely doesn't come off as a nice experience. Um, Johnny, I'm not sure if you've had one of these sleep paralysis things. And I think uh, regarding your question, you asked if it's, you know, a higher master or, you know, an, an uh, a succubi, well, a, um, ascended master, ascended master right. or something like that, or an enlightened being, why aren't they teaching us things and, uh, giving us advice? And I think that's a good clue as to, you know, it's probably not one of those types of things. Not that we, really put a lot of belief in ascended masters around here. Right. But um, I'll, I'll jump in just, yeah, just to got? respond. I, you know, it's weird because I've been actually, my dreams have become really sort of vivid recently, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange, but here's what's fascinating for me. Cause even in those moments, I've had a lot of dreams where like things are, you know, arriving or something. It's just weird. And it's not necessarily negative feeling, but there's, I don't know. There's like an inherent, reaction to pray and to right to call upon jesus no matter what exactly. you know so it's kind of like stay on the safe side you know and, and it's almost like a a natural reaction for me to sort of call upon the name of jesus even when i'm like asleep you know right and i know that i'm kind of you know I, I realize i'm asleep and i realize this is kind of weird you know um and then i realize afterwards when i wake up like oh wow that happened and i prayed and it was weird and yeah. <laughs> i didn't yeah. i didn't try to pray it just kind of happened you know so uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I will, that resonates really well um, with my experiences too, because I mean, whenever it happens, it's a really scary situation. And just, uh, you know, growing up with the knowledge that crying out to Jesus is, uh, solves a lot of issues. I mean, that very quickly became the remedy for the situation. Right. I mean, I've, I've had situations where, you know, things are on me, things are talking to me, things are, I mean, in, in one case, was trying to like roll me over and kind of getting in my face. But uh, yeah. And you know, when you, when you really get into it and you um, cry out to the Lord, you know, it'll, it'll settle that down right quick. Yeah, definitely. And one more thing, just a, 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 you know, because Johnny uh, Fram shouted out to us, I I just want to mention that he reached out to us and we, we didn't really relay this message and we should have, but he cut his hair. He, he has some, some long locks oh, and right. he cut his hair for kids and he donated it to uh, uh, kids to raise funds for Crohn's disease to make, you know, wigs out of real hair. And it looks like he hit his mark that he was trying to raise the money he was trying to raise. So good job, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny. Woo. Nice work. Okay. So that was Johnny from London. Uh, thanks again for that voicemail. And um, I hope our little 
few minute talk here made sense. What else do we got, Guns? Well, we got another message from someone named Ryan Has. Hi, I'm Ryan from the Philippines, and uh, I just want to ask about the Book of Enoch. Is it legitimate? Just like all the books in the Bible, and why should I consider it in my research? That's all. Thank you. God bless. Well, that is a very good question. We also um, addressed this in an episode. What episode was that, Gons? Do you remember? Not off the top of my head. It was well, an early episode. It's in there somewhere, so go look for it. But yeah. what do you think, Gons? Well, first off, Ryan, you're in the Philippines, man. That's awesome. <laughs> I would love to visit Filipinas. the Philippines. What? I, <laughs> what did you say? Just Phil- Philippines. Oh, man. Um, Sorry. Uh, the, the topic of the Book of Enoch, you know, after I put out Age of Deceit, I was criticized, as have other people who have brought up the Book of Enoch in their research uh, by Christians and others who say, you know, how can you use this information? It's heretical, etc. It's not in the, the 66 books of canon. But my response is, you have to read it like research. You know, it's, it's historical. It's definitely right. from that era. You know, it was uh, definitely in circulation when... Jesus was walking around. So yeah. I don't think it's uh, necessarily inspired. I actually don't think it's inspired. Um, and actually, if you read through all the way, it's a compilation of a bunch of writings. So it seems like the first few chapters are legit. You know, they echo many of the things that were talked about in Genesis 6, and they sort of give more detail. However, it, when you keep reading, it starts to turn really Gnostic, and it starts to... to I guess become more heretical as you go along. So I can see how people right. are concerned because, you know, there's, um, I think there are even cults that right. are, you know, associated with, you know, purely the book of Enoch. I was going to say, and a lot of psychics and things like that will refer to Metatron and, right. you know, things like that. And actually, although, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, although the book of Enoch is referenced to, um, in the Bible, is it not? Well, it's it doesn't say the Book of Enoch. However, it seems that Jude quotes a few passages from the Book of Enoch. But here's what's interesting. Here's here's I guess where the danger lies. John D, who was a a Doctor John D, I think uh, what 17th century. I don't have the the information in front of me, but he was uh, one of the consultants to Queen Elizabeth the first. And this is a, I know this because this is part of uh, something I'm presenting in the in Age of Deceit too. But he basically thought that he needs to find the secrets that Enoch held. So his whole mission was to discover the alchemical and hermetic, you know, formulas to basically, quote unquote, walk with God, you know, the same way that Enoch did and, you know, live forever. He didn't die. You know, he didn't see death because God took him. Right. So, you know, in the process, John D and his partner, I can't remember his name, but, uh, you know, they, they were like looking into crystal balls and they, they were basically communicated in an entire angelic language. So, I mean, again, it can, it can very easily go down that occultic path and right. I can see the concerns of people. So I wouldn't take it as so much as, Hey, this is pure truth, but it's fascinating to read the first few chapters and, uh, see the extra details that may or may not be true, but definitely do allude to 
Genesis six. So, uh, but in short, not canon for a reason. Not canon for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Ryan Has. All right, we have one more voicemail here, and this is regarding the uh, last episode with Catherine Dahlstrom. And here's Darnell. Hey, guys. I really enjoyed your last episode, uh, Children of Angels. I got the book, and I'm reading it because I'd like to see if my I can get my daughter interested in it and get her away from the Twilight series. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Okay, so Darnell is reading the Children of Angels book in hopes of getting his daughter out of reading the Twilight series, which I think is a very noble cause. The discussion is still going on about Catherine Dahlstrom's book, Children of Angels, first book of the Nephilim series. And so now we have Darnell, who is taking a read through it. I must admit I have not read through it, so I don't know exactly how it sits with me yet, but, you know... I will say it's I would rather my daughter um, be reading about spiritual truths than romantic relationships with vampires any day. Yeah, so I would agree with you there. So there you go. And I think Catherine Dahlstrom would agree and she would she would say that uh, that, you know, is accomplishing her mission that she set out to do. Yeah. So very good. Absolutely. Let us know how that goes, Darnell. Sounds good. So thanks for that, Darnell. And uh, for the rest of you guys, there's a few more messages that we got, and we will play those in the future. Uh, but for now, keep sending your voice messages. Uh, again, visit canarycryradio.com. On the right-hand side, that you will see a little tab poking out. And I believe I made a custom message to our listeners as well in green. Wow. So if you're on our website and this green pop-up thing comes up, that's just trying to prompt you to leave a voicemail for us. So definitely do that. Green, huh? I think it was like neon green or something. I don't know. Green as in go, you know? It's a subliminal thing. Oh. Subconsciously. Okay. Green, go. Do go it. Go green. Click here. Record okay. message. Well, just in case it's not green, if it says anything that has to do with voicemail, go do that. I'm looking at it. It's not green. What color is it? It's gray. What? Just looks regular. It says send no, no, voicemail. No, 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 no. Watch, watch. A pop up comes up. It doesn't always come up though, but it's. Oh wait, I have a pop up. Is it green? There's a green button on it. Oh, what the heck? Yeah, I don't know, man. It's supposed okay. to. It's supposed to. Don't click on it. It's like it's just supposed to. Oh wait, it says Yahweh bless. Please let us know if you do not want your message played on the podcast. Is, is your microphone ready? Yeah. Yeah, that, well, that's, anyhow, that, that's not it. I, I, there's a pop. Never mind. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Didn't happen. Gon's tried, everybody. But I tried. Well, if it doesn't the, pop up, nevertheless, either it way. It pops up. It's there. Leave a voicemail. Do it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, moving on, we've got a couple emails we're going to read from yes. some awesome, awesome listeners. The first one is from Janet Gons. Why don't you tell us about it? All right, this is what Janet had to say. She said, just started listening to your show on Uplayer, which I would like to know what Uplayer is. Do you know what that is, Basil? Uh, no, I'm sure it's great, though. Yeah. I've been interested in end times prophecy and the book of Revelation since I was a child. My passion for information is driving my husband crazy because he doesn't want to think about it. Classic. Yep. I am 59 years old and find that women don't like to talk about 
what they are seeing in our world today and how close we are. My father studied prophecy, but died too soon to see the details of how it's playing out. He just died six years ago, and to see how fast it's going is amazing. It wasn't as obvious as he didn't have the information from shows like yours and the ability to get the info off the internet. I have been ill, so I have had time to listen, and what I have learned from shows like yours over the last four months is fantastic. I've always wanted to know what's coming no matter what. Keep up the good work and enjoy the interviews from your guests. Janet. So thank thanks, you, Janet. Janet. Yeah. And uh, you keep up the good work and keep listening. Yeah. And we'll pray for you, Janet, because uh, it says you're ill and you've had time to listen to us. So I guess it's good that there's something for you to do. Yeah. Um, but we there hope you that uh, you get healthy and you're able to uh, convince your husband to at least listen to our show. Yeah. Let us know. We'll we'll give him a call. Have a talk with him. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. We've got another email from a listener named Julian. Here it goes. I wanted to start by saying I love CCR. I'm a very new Christian and have been listening to your show since it started. And I've re-listened to each episode at least three times. That's really impressive, Julian. I know that sounds strange, but Canary Cry Radio, Future Quake, Russ Dizdar, L.A. Marzuli, Revelation Radio, etc., are my church. Amen. I grew up, yeah, I grew up for 25 years as a Jehovah's Witness, and until last year, I was very convinced that they were the truth. Then I started finding out about 9/11 and conspiracy topics, and became obsessed with finding out everything I could. That's when my worldview was flipped upside down, and I started questioning everything I ever learned. As I kept digging, I stumbled upon your video, Age of Deceit, and I saw that there was a spiritual, biblical side to all of this. That's when I decided to look to the Bible to find the answers. I read the whole Bible in a matter of months. Uh, impressive. That's impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> he says, I was unemployed at the time. That'll do it. When I did, the Holy Spirit smacked me around and brought me to my senses. The brainwashing, the indoctrination I had undergone for 25 years was broken, and Jesus showed me the truth. Amen. Amen. And there, he actually goes on to tell an awesome um, testimony regarding you know, his experiences breaking away from Jehovah's Witness and you know, s- suffering the tragedy of family and excommunication and a couple other wonderful things, but we're actually going to save that. And hopefully we're going to hear from Julian in the future as uh, Gons and I uh, continue to speak with him. But Julian, thanks so much for your email, man. God bless you. (laughs) Keep listening to those episodes. And um, yeah, thanks for the message, Julian. It sort of, when I first read this, I mean, it was one of those that I was pretty emotional about because it's like, wow, man, that's, this is the one, man. It's, it's what it's all about. Yeah, and and so like Basil said, um, we hope to hear more from him, and I believe we will because uh, we got some stuff planned for Julian in the future, and it's going to involve Canary Cry Radio and some cool things. So, all right, so there you go. We got. Should we do another one, Gons? Uh, let's do. Let's. Let's wham, bam. Thank you, man. Let's do a couple more. Let's just do a couple more. Let's roll through. This one's from Adam. Hey, guys. I'm from Perth, West Australia. That's far away. away. I don't even think you could get any further away. Your message is reaching out far and wide. 
God bless for the message you're bringing. I've always seen more to the biblical accounts than standard sermons at church. Through Unbelievable with Justin Briley, I listened to that show, I love that show, and Coast to Coast podcast, I traced you fellows. Your message has reinforced my belief in Jesus the Lord and helped me see I'm definitely not isolated in my fringe-ish beliefs on the cloud the devil has placed over even modern Christianism. Christianism. Even thousands of miles away, you're making a difference. Uh, thought it might help you to know just how far your message is changing lives. Well, thank Thanks. you, Adam. You're awesome. Yeah, thanks, mate. Um, oh, I want to surf in Australia. Yeah, no. So you want to what in Australia? Surf. surf. Oh, surf. Yeah. yeah. Surf, that's where it's at. I know a few Australian surfers. They're, they're wild dudes. Yeah, I've, I actually raced against some Australian Olympic swimmers, and they were very fast and yeah, tall and stuff. Fast and tall. <laughs> That's how they like to make them down there. Well, I think swimming is like one of the big sports in Australia, so. I wouldn't know. Anyway. All right, Adam. Thanks, buddy. Moving on, Super Tosh. Super this Tosh. This is uh, an email from our friend Super Tosh. Just wanted to say thanks so much for all your hard work, your style of presentation, and f the fantastic artwork make your site very easy to recommend to people to check out ideas which seem far out to some. Your humor and intelligence make... You, my favorite podcast. All right. That was me and Gons high-fiving. <laughs> Just sorting out my PayPal so I can subscribe for $5 a month. Things are a bit tight financially, but what you put out is well worth the contribution. See, Super Tosh, you get it. Thanks. Thanks, you. By the way, have you seen the building they've put up in the center of London? The Shard. The bar in it is called the Obelisk. I haven't come across any other Christians who have noticed this building is super dodgy. I might be going to see a friend sing. I'll let you know if I spot anything interesting. Blessings, brothers. Wow. There's a lot of things to, um, yeah. you know, Super Tosh might be our, our London architecture correspondent now. Yeah. And I'm actually looking at the website of the Shard and it's like this big, obelisk looking thing made out of huh. glass and it's uh you're right it's it's in the center of um of it's called a vertical city and uh, wow interesting yeah. I, I i you know we haven't I, I guess we haven't really done stuff like that recently. no we haven't looked into it but in the words of super tosh it sounds super dodgy and let us know if you went to go see your friend sing let us know you should i mean you should take some pics send it to us and we'll we'll talk about it over here yeah absolutely um, and again, thank you so much for your monthly support of $5 a month, Super Tosh. Um, we know everything is super tight financially for the entire world, thanks to those big jerks uh, <laughs> running the banks and things. Um, but we really appreciate that. And for those of you who haven't considered it yet, uh, if you go to canarycryradio.com under the support tab, we have given you the opportunity to help support Canary Cry Radio with a monthly contribution of all shapes and sizes. And so uh, if you would take a moment and seek the Lord, and if Canary Cry Radio adds anything to your life or your day or uh, your framework and your worldview, please consider helping us out with any amount. Or if you're afraid of commitment, you can also just make a one-time donation in any amount and we will give you a big old high five when we see you in heaven. Yes. And thank you for the people that have been supporting us. It really means a lot to us. And yeah. So there we have it. That was, that was a lot of listener Feedback. contribution. 
a lot of listener contribution to the show here. So thank everybody for sending in your emails and your voicemails and making us feel the love and uh, keeping us posted on scary buildings. So there you go. Make sure to everybody, if you haven't done that yet, go do that now. Yeah, absolutely. Just just press pause and go do it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's get on to today's episode, which is an interview with Josh Peck. Josh Peck! Today we have a guest who is the author of a book called Disclosure, Unveiling Our Role in the Secret War of the Ancients. Uh, He's a Christian and a biblical researcher with a passion for Bible prophecy. Uh, His mission is to wake up the church to the reality of the Bible, separate biblical truth from church tradition, and provide the solid, raw, uncut truth of God's word to any and all who will listen. It's Josh Peck. How you doing, Josh? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Good. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm especially excited for this uh, episode. Um, not necessarily because I've read his book in entirety, but because I'm looking forward to it from just what I've gotten to look at uh, in the past couple of days. Gons, however, being the good uh, reading Christian boy as he is, <laughs> reading has Christian gone through boy. it. I don't know. That's just a thing, I guess. It's a thing. Okay. That's right. a thing. <laughs> Be good reading Christian boys and girls. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yep. But anyways, anyway. Josh Peck's here. So, <laughs> um, so again, thank you for coming on the show, Josh Peck. How are you doing tonight? I am doing fantastic. Glad to be here. Okay, awesome. good. Well, let's just uh, to uh, introduce you to the audience. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to write the book? Sure. I was, uh, well, I was born and raised in a very traditional legalistic Baptist background. And, you know, I, it, it's not so much, I don't have anything against the Baptist church. I mean, they introduced me to Jesus and that's where the foundation of my faith came from. And uh, I especially owe that to my grandparents and, and my mom for keeping that instilled in me. But uh, when I became about you know, around 10, 12 years old, I started having some questions that just uh, they couldn't seem to answer. And we were um, a King James only uh, church. So I uh. couldn't read that, <laughs> you know, being 12 years old didn't make any sense to me. Uh so I couldn't find the answers for myself. I couldn't get the answers from the preacher. And the go-to answer I would always get for my questions was, well, you just got to take it on faith. And while that is, uh, you know, it's good advice, but it's also kind of a cop-out if I'm asking if, you know, aliens exist or something. Well, just right. take it on faith. You know, it's <laughs> not really, uh, doesn't really answer. So uh, after after I was about 12 years old, I kind of fell away from the church back like the organized religion kind of thing I, I didn't fall away from god or jesus just the church itself i guess um right. i kind of did my own thing for a few years wasn't having too much fun with it and uh, god got a hold of me and brought me kind of back but not back to the church just back to him and through his word and um so i got back in the bible i started reading a um New Living Translation, so I could actually understand what what I was reading, and things started clicking, started making sense. Um, so the whole process took about ten years to get me back to where I was an actual, daily devoted practicing Christian and all that. Right. Well, 
Then um, after that, God started bringing me, after he solidified the foundation, he started bringing me into uh, more prophetic things. And then that was where it was like my eyes were opened and my passion was ignited and all this. And I started getting really excited about it. And uh, God took a couple years with that. And after that, he's like, okay, you know, he kind of said in my spirit, I've showed you all this stuff, but I don't want you to just sit on it. You know, I want you to go out and tell other people too. And uh, I started thinking back on how just throughout the whole process, how much time God took with me and the pro like the um, the exact way that he did it. You know, he started off really slow <laughs> and uh, in showing me the differences between church tradition and biblical truth. I don't have a problem with church tradition as long as it lines up with the Bible. The problem is a lot of it doesn't. <laughs> So God started me with uh, real simple and easy to understand things like uh, the tradition that says Adam and Eve ate an apple in the garden. And that was basically what encompassed the first sin. But when you look in the in the Bible in Genesis, it doesn't say apple. It just says fruit. So right. it's it's a small example, definitely not like a salvation issue or anything like that. But that was one of the first things God showed me that opened my eyes to see like, oh, something's being preached in the church that actually isn't biblical. So that led to more in-depth things, and after you know, after a while, got into all the prophetic things, because uh, through that, that's where God really put in me. All right, if if the church can get something so seemingly simple as you know the difference between apple and fruit, what about more important things? You know, may, maybe things that are salvation issues or prophetic things. So once I started. Thinking about that, I, I started reading the Bible as an actual literal book instead of a book full of just symbolism and, you know, anything can mean whatever you want it to mean, basically. <laughs> Once right. I started reading it as a literal book, it just it, it redefined I, it just redefined my entire faith. Pretty much it. Uh, I, I started to see it as a book that really is alive. I started seeing verses that I, I knew very well, knew by heart, but seeing them in a whole new light. So that that was re what really led to me writing the book Disclosure, because, like I said earlier, God put that on my heart that this wasn't just for me. There were other people that were in my or are in the situation I was in and who want to come out of it. Also, others that have come out of it and then just might want to have some more nuggets of truth. So uh, it led me to write the book and I used the same process in writing that God took with me I start off start off slow, but I also kept in mind people that have already made this realization. And uh, so I put nuggets of truth throughout the whole book. So it's it's really a book for, for anybody. Awesome. Now, <clears throat> you talk about sort of solidifying a foundation of understanding and, you know, for, for your own personal beliefs when it comes to God. And the first five chapters of your book or so is devoted to, uh, you know, really putting down a firm foundation of understanding of uh, the war that you talk about. Now, five chapters is a lot of chapters. So <laughs> uh, you obviously put a lot of value in a firm foundation. Um, kind of, I mean, how did that come about? That's, that's a, it's a lot of book space. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I thought about how, how God did it with me, I was thinking, all right, what I really want to write about is, you know, the Nephilim, aliens, all that stuff, the stuff that, you know, I find really interesting. But uh, and I did in the third part of the book. But um, 
what what I was thinking is, okay, if I open with that, if I'm trying to, you know, write a book for everybody, I'm going to lose half of my audience right off the bat because I know that when I was entrenched in a traditional Baptist mindset, if somebody would have uh, gave me a book that opened up with Nephilim stuff and all this, I would have had no frame of reference for it whatsoever, and it, w it wouldn't have done me a bit of good. And, uh, you know, now that I can see the importance of that kind of stuff, I realized, okay, well, in order to get there, we have to lay this foundation first. You know, just because something isn't preached in a church normally, like the Nephilim, it doesn't mean that it's not true, such as, uh, you know, the apple or that it doesn't say that there were three wise men. You know, it just says wise men. So that's another small example I use in the beginning of the book. So it's kind of more about trying to ease the reader off of the... Well, I want to be careful how I say this. <laughs> off of the organized religion aspect, not that it's necessarily evil or wrong, but just that we should never use organized religion as a replacement for a relationship with God. And I think that's, I, I know for me, that was my mistake. I had a relationship with the church, but until God started showing me his book, his Bible for the literal book that it is and reading it for myself, that was when I really started having a personal relationship with God instead of through the church. So that's why I started with that foundation, because um, if you have, if you can build a relationship with God first, even if it's just starting off, that's going to help open the, open uh, your eyes to everything else that's in the Bible and stuff that I write about in my book too. Right. Well, you start off with salvation as the sort of the launching point. And in that section, you talk about hell. And I found it fascinating the way you were able to articulate your thoughts on hell, what you used to think it really was and, you know, what you came to understand, you know, without giving away everything in the book there. Can you give us a little insight as to, um, you know, how you came about and how you, because hell is, hell is one of those topics that it seems like, and, you know, we would love to do a show on hell. And I think people have asked for that and we probably will tackle it eventually. It's a big topic, but, oh, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we hear at least in the circles that, you know, Basil and I have run around, <laughs> we always hear that hell is just a separation from God, point blank, yep. which, which is true in one sense. Uh, but you seem to have come to a little bit of a stronger conclusion. Can you sort of fill us in on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That, and I, I was raised with that same thing that, you know, hell is just, uh, it's, it's separation from God. And, you know, the place of hell is just what happens when God is absent, you know, kind of thing. That's why it's all hellish. <laughs> but uh, when I started looking into the, the Bible as a literal book that it is and not allegorizing everything, I started to realize that, you know, it's there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah, it is, it is separation. But, you know, on that side of eternity, it's not that hell is a place where God is absent. I mean, that, that side of eternity is God's domain. He's, he's everywhere. I mean, uh, the only reason that there's a separation right now is for our benefit, because when we look at passages like Daniel 7, uh, 9 through 11, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, you know, we find that God essentially is fire. He's he's kind of made of it, <laughs> among other things. Right. And uh, we find that all over the Bible. So what happens is we have this separation right now, and it's really for our benefit, because if we were to be in the presence of God, we'd, we'd essentially fry. <laughs> and it's 
the same on that side of eternity. If we don't accept Jesus, if we die in our sins, we don't have the the uh, the special covering. The uh, it talks about in Revelation, lots of other places, the the clothing of of Christ. We don't have that to protect ourselves from His glory and His eminence and this this holy fire that comes from Him. If we don't have that covering, that's what burns us. That's essentially what what hell is. And if we're burning and, and frying in our in our sins, being in the presence of God, we can't be in His kingdom and in uh, you know in heaven. Essentially, there's a place set aside for that. Hell was especially prepared for that originally for the devil and his angels. But so that's hell is where they go. But the process of it, it's it's God's holy fire that really is what does the burning but through salvation in jesus christ we're giving we're given that protective covering in a sense that where we can actually be in his presence yeah that's that's really fascinating i you know especially after we we just talked with doug hamp and his uh he he explains a lot about you know god being made of fire and things like that and and what you just said to me resonates a lot more with uh the idea of hell than definitely the traditional fire and brimstone you know smoky place down dante's, in the earth dante's uh, <laughs> right but <laughs> also sort of but also it i don't know it, it was probably in my adolescence that i heard hell explained as you know the total separation from god and sort of just drifting in a black void of nothingness which is so torturous for whatever reason without without the sort of very graphic depictions of hell that you actually do find in the Bible. But I say that to say that when I hear you talking about um, hell in that way and explaining it the way that you do, it does resonate a lot more, even on just a logical level. So coming from reading the Bible rather than trying to find sort of an explanation for <laughs> for <laughs> what you're trying to interpret, you know. Absolutely. It was the same with me when I first came across that. And I, I wasn't even going into it looking for it. Just I was just in my own personal study and came across it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, I think the first verse I looked at was Daniel, where it talks about God being made of fire and all that. And I was like, I wonder if that has anything to do with hell. And that kind of went on a whole different study of my own. But when I started reading that, I was like, oh, man, this really does resonate with me, just like you're saying. And um, I, I believe what that is, is it's actually it's discerning of spirits. It's the it's the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to us when we, uh, you know, in our own human logic, it's easy for us to believe lies or, you know, we, we don't really have a good grasp on what's truth or what's not because we're, we're human, we're flawed. But since we're saved, since we have Jesus, he, he puts his Holy Spirit in us. And that's what reve reveals the truth to us. So when we hear the truth or when we read it or uh, when we come to an interpretation and it resonates like that, I believe that that's the Holy Spirit reacting to the truth to let us know, hey, there's there's something there. So, I mean, it's it's right. definitely a, an awesome gift to have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that it when I first read it, it resonated with me, too, and I ran with it. And then later on, I came across uh, Doug Hamp's stuff, like what you were saying, and that confirmed it for me. So, right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's like, uh, it's going to be hell, not really, you know, it's not really a place, you know. When, yeah. So, uh, another topic that I, you know, just real quick, we can just sort of jump from topic to topic here because you tackle a lot of stuff here. I really like this section, salvation misconceptions, and you go after this idea of once saved, always saved. 
And, you know, this is, I've seen debates and stuff online over this topic. And what, uh, what did you come to? What was your conclusion as you uh, looked into this topic here? Well, when I, uh, the way that I was raised, the, there, there's a lot of different versions of the once saved, always saved doctrine. Some are closer to the biblical truth than others, but the one that I was pretty much raised with was a little different than the one I tackled in the book. I, I was raised, you know, you'd say the salvation prayer, and if you mean it in your heart, then you're saved and so on and so forth. The one that I really attacked in the book is the one that really seems to be on the rise in the church now, and it basically states that if you have this prayer you can just say it and like like it's a magical incantation or something right and it, it doesn't right. matter if you don't if you're if you don't really know if god's there it's just kind of like an insurance policy but you say this prayer and then you're saved and you don't have to do anything with it and you know you, you don't ever have to pray again or you don't have to have a relationship with god or anything like that that's that's the version that i really went after because it is so ridiculously unbiblical <laughs> and, and it's it's definitely on the on the rise in the church one of the passages that god really first showed me in understanding this whole concept of what it really means to um to be saved was uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I'll just run through it real quick. Uh, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works, Then, and then will I profess to them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So when I first read that, in in understanding, this was one of the verses that I've heard, you know, ever since I was a kid, but it didn't really click until I started looking at it literally. I realized, wow, there are there's going to be people that believe they're saved and they're not. I mean, according to this, it sounds like they that some of them can even cast out devils in the Lord, you know, in Jesus' name and all this, but they're still not going to make it into the kingdom. So, yeah. of course, naturally, I got a little worried. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, well, how does that apply to me? And um, after reading through it a few times and a lot of other comparative verses, cause it's, it's, it's all over, all over the Bible. But um, it says, uh, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. That's the first part. So that says that not everyone that calls to Jesus that says this prayer or this, this magical incantation is going to make it. It's not, it's not in the repeated prayer. It's in the heart because it says, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. So there's there's a relationship there because to love God is to, to obey him and to do his will. And uh, without that relationship, the salvation prayer just kind of does become this insurance policy, our you know, ticket out of hell. And I, I don't believe that Jesus is really going to honor that because it's not genuine. So I, I had to look at myself and think, well, you know, I, I, I was saved when I was like four years old, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, or I said the prayer and I thought back to that time. My, my mom, uh, came into my room and she said, Josh, you need to be saved, you know, repeat after me. And I did. And then she left and I had no idea what had just happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when, uh, when I was, uh, 12, I, I started doubting my salvation a lot. And at that time I was, I was just starting to come out of the, the Baptist, uh, mindset, but I was, I was still in it. So I, that was my main question that I couldn't get an answer to because I kept, I just kept being assured, no, you're saved. You accepted Jesus. You're fine. But I just had this unsettling just restlessness in my spirit. 
So uh, once I gave it to God, though, he, he, he showed me the truth and uh, he showed me these Bible verses and it started to make sense. It's like, oh, OK, it's the initiation of the prayer and the relationship. You know, there's a relationship there. I'm I'm his adopted son in a sense. You know, he's he's my father. I can't just ask him to save me, then never talk to him for the rest of my life. What kind of relationship is that? So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it started to make sense and altered the course of my life and how I live my life now. And so the, the doubt's gone, but yeah, that, so that's the version that I really wanted to go after because it's leading this once saved, always saved doctrine is leading a lot of people astray. Also the, um, the idea that, you can't lose your salvation no matter what you do, which I used to believe that. And, um, you know, in a sense, I, I gotta say, like, I don't think that you can like accidentally lose your salvation. Like, I don't think if you commit one sin, then you're going to hell. If you don't, you know, if if you're saved, you're probably fine. (laughs) I think it takes like a really conscious free will effort that you would have to actually really turn your heart away from God and, and deny him and all this. And I I think that there's a lot of Bible passages that speak to that effect too. But this once saved, always saved teaching that's on the rise now says, oh, go ahead and and sin, live in sin. You know, you're you're saved, so you're fine. And I I just, I can't say that I believe that anymore. Yeah, and I I like that you named this section laying down the foundation or, or something to that effect. And, you know, I'm enjoying this because you really are sort of going through some of the basic elements, but you know, this is all leading up, ladies and gentlemen out there, where this is all leading up to the aliens and the Nephilim and all the crazy <laughs> stuff. So I, I like that we're taking this road for people that, again, I think your goal for the book was to sort of hold people by the hand, if you will, and, you know, help right. them go up the steps, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, like you said at the beginning, the Nephilim topic is a big topic and you don't want to drop, uh, obviously you don't want to drop a Nephilim on someone because... Uh, but, but this uh, this idea of uh, once saved, always saved, I like that you went after that because, and I think it pertains to, you know, end times prophecy, because Absolutely. the Bible talks about, you know, the apostasy of the church, which means that people are going to turn away. You know, literally, they're right. going to physically turn away and perhaps lose their salvation. So I like that you tackled this here. Well, you go into some things to separate, I guess, Bible tradition and, you know, you continue on in that vein throughout the uh, the first five chapters here. What are some of the things that you wanted to tackle as far as, um, you know, in the sections of seeking truth and, you know, just the, the methods that you took there to, to I guess, challenge some of the, uh, I guess, traditional biblical, you know, views on things? Yeah, uh, in... Yeah, and Seeking the Truth, that was one of the most important chapters for me to write because in there I talk about how important it is to go back to the original languages, and that was something I definitely wasn't brought up in. I was brought up with this this theory called divine translation, which basically states uh, the King James Version Bible is exactly like a perfect translation of the Greek and the Hebrew original manuscripts. So there's no need to look at the original manuscripts. You can just take the King James Version and it's fine. Right. And and it's, it's so ridiculous because it's like, well, you know, the King James, even though that is, it, it's my go-to translation for the most part because the benefit of the majority. But when you read it, it's in English, but we don't talk like that anymore. It's not even really <laughs> perfectly translated into our own modern vernacular. I will do in the midst thereof, neither hearken unto thy voice. So how could I expect it to be 
perfectly translated in that sense of understanding from a totally different language. So in the in seeking the truth, I go I go into an example of um, John twenty one fifteen through seventeen, where Jesus is talking to Peter, and uh, you know it's where he keeps asking him, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And at the last time that he asks it, Peter is grieved, and he says, oh, you know, you know, I love you. When I first looked at that as a as a child, I was like, you know, what what's going on here? Why? <laughs> Was Peter grieved because Jesus just Jesus wouldn't leave him alone about it, or like, you know, it, 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 I, I had no frame of reference. But when I went back to the original Greek, it's like, oh, these are different words. Greek has like I think three or four different uh, words for love. There's different types of love. We just have the word love. And so while that passage is technically accurate, we really lose a lot of understanding if we don't take it back to the original language because when when Jesus first asked Peter if he loved him he was using the word agape or uh, there's different ways to pronounce it but it, it just basically means like the highest form of love and is comparable not equal to but is comparable to uh, God's perfect love and I say that because there's some people there's a misinterpretation that says agape is God's perfect love and it, it's not it just means the highest form of but anyway uh, so the first couple times that Jesus asked, that's what he—that's the word he was using. But when Peter answered, Peter used the word phileo, which just means like a friendship type of love. So that would be like if I asked my wife, you know, do you love me more than anything in the world? And if she says, yeah, I, I, I like you, you're all right. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. it's kind of like that. And then the last time Jesus asked, Jesus says, use the word phileo. That's why Peter was grieved. Because Peter, I think, kind of realized there, you know, I, I, just, I don't have this this uh, highest form of love for Jesus. And, you know, due to his humanity and all that, without going back to the original languages, that whole the whole meaning of that passage is completely lost on us. And it's so important because it has to do with our own relationship with God and love and all that. So that's what I really focused on in that chapter. Right. Well, that's, again, very important to laying down the basics uh, and a firm foundation of modern Christianity and, and breaking away from the, finding the truth rather than uh, just the uh, traditions that we're used to. Now, moving on into the next part of the book, now that you lay down this foundation, well, now where do you go from there? How do you start moving us into the next section here? Yeah, so after that uh, foundation, we can get into some uh, deeper things. And now, now that we have that foundation, the deeper things will start to make sense. And uh, I, I decided to start this, the, the second part of the book, with the topic of forgiveness, because I think that I, I know I had a lot of misconceptions about it. And, uh, you know, I had a, a lot of pretty messed up stuff happen to me in my childhood. So I carried around a lot of unforgiveness. And I didn't really realize what forgiveness was. You know, in our uh, in our culture nowadays, we look at for we look we kind of look at forgiveness and trust as the same thing, but biblically, it's not. They're they're two completely different things. So growing up, when I would uh, always hear, you know, you have to always forgive, I thought that meant that I would have to put trust in whoever I was forgiving again. And uh, but Jesus says in um, Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen, I'm just going to paraphrase here, but Basically, if you have a if somebody commits a sin against you or somebody does something wrong, 
he Jesus lays out the process of how to uh, how to work it out. And, uh, you know, first he says to go to him privately. Second, uh, you know, and if that if that works, then all's good. If not, bring a couple of people that are unbiased and try to work it out that way. If that doesn't work, bring it up with the church. And if that doesn't work, then basically treat him as a heathen, you know, get him out of your life pretty much. And the funny thing is, right after that, <laughs> Peter asked Jesus, well, how often should I forgive my brother? Uh, until seven times? And Jesus says, no, until 70 times seven. And so I was like, okay, well, is it three or is it, you know, 70 times seven or, you know, the first passage isn't talking about forgiveness. It's talking about trust. That's how to know if we can trust somebody. Mm. If, uh, if we go through the three-step process and they're still not, you know, it's just not working, then we're, Jesus gives us allowance to get them out of our lives. Now we're still supposed to forgive them in our, in our hearts because unforgiveness is, it's a cancer on the soul. Uh, so we're still supposed to forgive them. We're always supposed to forgive, but that doesn't mean that we have to be a victim and trust them again. It's okay to forgive people and keep them out of your lives. And, and I, coming into that realization, I've had to do that a lot and it's been nothing but beneficial. Um, so that I, I started it off. I started that part off with that because one of the biggest things in my transformation back to Christ and in, in the way that he intended was getting the unforgiveness out of my heart. And I realized that the more unforgiveness I had in my heart, the less room there was for Jesus. Once I got that unforgiveness out, I was able to understand a lot more things and, you know, it just, it just made me a better person all around. So I started off there and I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to open the book with the topic of forgiveness because it can be touchy. A lot of times people might say, well, you don't know what I've been through, or what this person did to me, or, you know, how can I forgive them? It's like, well, you know, just, you got to understand what forgiveness means in the Bible. It doesn't mean trust. You don't have to trust them. So with the foundation of the first part of the book, understanding who God is and our relationship with him, it, it shows how important forgiveness is to that relationship. So that's why I opened it with that. <laughs> that's really good. Um, and I noticed also at the end of the, just stepping back just one step, you do uh, talk about necromancy right at the end of the first five chapters, I believe. And so, yes. you know, I thought that was a good good way to sort of drop, you know, one of the more, I guess, paranormal or supernatural elements, <laughs> you know, j just to have it in there. And then, yep. you know, and then you go right back to forgiveness and trust. It's It's nice. It's a nice little ebb and flow. You continue on, you talk about distractions and, and you talk about idol worship. And um, I thought it was interesting what you talked about in idol worship because, you know, it's hard to, for us in this culture, you know, having idols is sort of a normal thing. It's almost seen as a good thing, right? You know, they talk yeah. about athletes have, you know, being good role models and, you know, we idolize musicians and actors and, you know, there, there's a level of acceptance of what an idol is. And so I thought you did a good job of actually going into the Greek and, and sort of, you know, digging into the words and what they mean. And um, what what was the conclusion that you came to with this idea of idol worship? Well, the conclusion for me when I uh, when I first realized this is, uh, wow, I got to make a lot of changes. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our typical view of idol worship, the view that I held and, and those who I've talked to in the past about it, our typical view is, you know, we think of idol worship as like kneeling down before an altar to a false god with incense and candles and all this in this big theatric display. But again, in biblical classification, that's 
that's part of it, but that's not the whole the whole story. When we look into the the Greek and really realize what an idol is and what worship is, it's so much broader of a sense. And uh, you know, an idol can be literally anything. It, it can be anything at all. It doesn't even have to be like a real thing. It can be an idea or a fantasy or uh, a goal. I mean, it, it could be anything. And uh, worship, in a sense, it, it doesn't have to mean always like worship in the sense that we worship God or worship in the sense that you know we make a big display about it. It can it it can just mean like a reverence or a, a strong liking or, you know, anything that, anything that will create that, that feeling in us that God really should be creating, I guess. Right. Yeah. And uh, so looking at idol worship, you know, I, I started to think about myself and I wrote a little bit about that in the book. And yeah, I mean, all of these things too, in the book, I put my own personal examples because I know a lot of these things can come off as preachy. <laughs> so I put my own examples in there too, to say, you know, Hey, I'm preaching to myself too. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I definitely wasn't perfect with this and I'm not perfect with this now, but you know, I'm still learning and improving. So this isn't like a beat you over your head kind of book. It's just, it's let, you know, let's, let's learn together. I went through this, you know, I want to help you too. So for me, uh, you know, I'm big into music. I love music. And I started to realize, you know, it was really easy for me to say, you know, uh, I love this band or I love this song. And I, I started thinking, well, how often do I ever declare that I love Jesus like that? <laughs> you know, almost never. <laughs> and uh, that, that really got me thinking, like, wow, you know, the percentage of how much I openly declare that I love all these worldly things to how often I say that I love God, it, it's like ridiculous. So, uh, and it's not necessarily to say that those things are wrong or evil, but when they start to take place of God like that, it, it can become idol worship in a sense. Right. So I, yeah, God kind of, kind of took me there and <laughs> had me make some changes, but, uh, I mean, it's all beneficial though, because it, it, when we make those changes and put God first, we actually gain a, a real godly appreciation for the the things that we might love like music or whatever since i've been putting god first in it and like say with uh with god and music or god and tv shows or you know whatever putting god first i now have a more real appreciation for the things that i would always say i love like it it's hard to explain but it's almost like seeing it through god's eyes and appreciating it in a in a stronger sense than we would be able to in a worldly you know human sense so there's definitely a ben benefit there Right. And you just, uh, it's, it's funny. You just mentioned how you're trying not to sound preachy and stuff like that. But, uh, I think it's kind of funny The one of the sections that I think you do sound the most preachy is the little <laughs> next section on, on, uh, sorcery. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, that's a really interesting topic because obviously it's, uh, it's relevant to our day. It's, it's more so than I think people realize I think I saw a article, don't quote me on this, but I believe 70% of Americans are on at least one prescription drug. And I think 50% are on at least two. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of people taking pills for, you know, whatever's going on. And, you know, that's a whole different topic that we can jump into at some point, um, you know, in, in a future episode, just looking at the, you know, the pharmaceutical monster and how yeah. it's tied in with the whole elite program and everything like that. But uh, oh, yeah. what, uh, what, um, 
what what kind of things did you sort of attack here? Because it seems like you were going after people that drinks alcohol. <laughs> you you sound, you come off as this holy, you know, like I never dropped, a, you know, I've never touched a drop of wine type thing. Oh my gosh, I I've used to never be such dropped a cool acid. I've never dropped. Acid. No, I, what, I what? used to be just used the be, innocence, man. Yeah, I know. Oh man, I I used to be such a drunk. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I if I came off across like that in the in in that chapter, I apologize. I that was not at all my intent. Um, I also, you know, in in a sense, I didn't want to lose too much credibility either, because I didn't want them, right the reader to think, oh, just some drunk is writing this. Cause my, <laughs> I wasn't drinking when I was writing <laughs> writing the book, but no, I um. Well, the reason I went after went after that, and you know, I think I think I said a bunch of times, especially in in that section, you know, I'm not trying to sound preachy. The main reason that I'm bringing it up is because I've been there, and I know the kind of damage it does to the, to our relationship with God. And coming out of it, I know how much benefit there there is coming, you know, coming out of it. Um, now, whether somebody wants to have a glass of wine with dinner, I you know, to each his own. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to even <laughs> go there, but it, it's it's more in the sense of being drunk or like what that means, because a lot of times people will say, well, Jesus drank wine, whether it was alcoholic or not. You know, I, it maybe it was a little bit. I, I don't know. But it's beside the point, because Jesus wasn't a fall fall down drunk stumbling around Israel. And, you know, <laughs> right. he, he wasn't that kind of guy. So even if he did drink alcoholic wine, which that's debatable, but even if he did, it wasn't to get drunk. So that's not really a good justification to, to get drunk. But, uh, my, my main, my main thing there with the, with the whole sorcery deal too, tying that all in is because I used to have major addiction problems with that. And it totally got in the way of my relationship with God. And not only that, I can see now how it prevented God in a way from blessing me in the way that he might've wanted to, because, um, when we have disobedience with God, he's not going to bless that. You know, he's a just and fair God. So in a sense, he he can't really bless us in the way that he might want to if we're being disobedient. It's, you know, I, I think of it in terms of like my daughter. Uh, you know, she's two years old, so sometimes she can be a bit much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when she gets like that, as much as I, you know, if she's throwing her toys around the house or, you know, throwing a fit or whatever, as much as I would love to just pick her up and and uh, cuddle her or play with her until she calms down or give her candy so she so she'll get in a better mood, <laughs> as much as I'd love to do that because it's easier, I know it's not right because it's not going to teach her anything except if I throw a fit, I get candy. You know, it's kind of the same sense with uh, with God and us. You know, he's he's our father. He's there to teach us. If if we're involved in these behaviors that he specifically puts in the Bible that, you know, not to do and uh, but continues to bless us anyway. And, you know, we don't have any relationship problems with God from it. Then what is that really teaching us? That's just allowing us to get away with it. And, you know, again, as much as I tried to not sound preachy, I also had to, you know, God laid on my heart like, okay, you got to be bold with this and just put out the truth and not be too apologetic because yeah. it's a it's an important message. So, you know, I, I wrote in there that you know I've had problems with this in the past, so I I am no I, I'm not judging. I'm I'm trying just trying to teach from personal experience and from the Bible. Uh, another another thing with me was uh, prescription painkillers. I have a 
I have a bone disease that can create a lot of a lot of discomfort. And because of that, I was prescribed uh, prescription painkillers. So, I mean, that that was legal. That was like in the worldly sense, it was totally fine for me to take those. And for right. years I did. And uh, now I'm I'm not at all giving out medical advice here. I'm not saying that if you're on a prescription that to stop taking it, you know, I'm not saying that that's between, you know, you and God. But for me, I started to see, you know, it started off with just a small dose, but it, it got all the way up to like Oxycontin and all like this ridiculous stuff that was just zoning me out. I was doing no good for God when I was uh, feeling like that. And it didn't get rid of the pain totally anyway. So, you know, God kind of laid it on my heart. Okay, you got to get off this stuff because you're, he's like, let me worry about the pain. Trust in me. I'll help you through it. Just get off these pills. And that's when I started to see, oh, I'm I'm using these pills as a replacement for God because I don't have enough faith in God that he can take my pain away or heal me even. So I'm using these pills as a crutch. Since getting off those, again, it's been nothing but benefit. My pain's gone down drastically, and uh, I've been a lot more clear-headed, obviously. So, yeah, with that chapter, I, I tried hard not to sound preachy, but I think a lot of my boldness might might come across that way. But, you know, I, I, again, I've been through all this stuff myself, so I am the last person in the world that has a right to judge anybody on it. I'm uh, I'm just speaking from, like, a personal standpoint. I was there. I know what it can do. And I want to help in any way that I can. Yeah, you did a good job. I was just teasing you about that. I wasn't trying to go <laughs> going after you. Well, amen. Well, it sounds like so far that the work is a good, solid contemporary guide to, I would say, a very solid and uh, consistently truthful relationship with God. Uh, now, how, going from there, do we move into uh, things like the Nephilim and UFOs and things like that? Well, now that we have the foundation of who God is, you know, the, the, the kind of person he is, that he's fair and just, and now that we understand things that, you know, a person can lose their salvation possibly, and then moving into things in our personal life that can, you know, like forgiveness and distractions and all this stuff, um, getting those out of our lives now that leaves more room for God to be able to be there to open our eyes to to see this prophetic stuff. So I, I saved all the all that weird stuff <laughs> for the end for that reason. Let's get into the weird stuff, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So the third part of the book is where I really get into all that. So with that, I started with a chapter called Interpreting Prophecy. Because that's what really a lot of this really kind of weird stuff ties back to. Even the stuff that goes back in Genesis can be looked at as a prophecy or a shadow of things that are to come in our future. Things that, well, actually might already be here. So in, in interpreting prophecy, and this, I, I swear this could be a whole separate show in its own, and I probably shouldn't even bring it up, but I use the example of the rapture. And I'll try to go as briefly as I can. <laughs> There's so much... Uh, division in the church over this and it boggles my mind because it's like you know even paul called it a mystery so you know i i don't even believe paul fully understood it the the bible you know we have a lot of places that we can go to to understand pieces of it but as far as the timing of the rapture so when i when i looked at that there was a time in my life i a span of maybe five or six years where i went through and put all my stock in, you know, one after another of the four major 
rapture beliefs. That's, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and then just like no rapture whatsoever or preterism or whatever. So there, there was a, I, I never really got into the preterist stuff, but yeah. there, there was a time that at least for pre-mid and uh, post that I believed in it and I put all my stock, all my stock in it. And uh, coming out of that, I was like, okay, if Paul called this a mystery and if all of these rapture verses in a sense can kind of mean different things in our own interpretation, then what right do I have to put all of my stock in one of them? So the way I look at it now, and I, the reason I use this is because it's something everybody can relate to. Everybody has at least heard of it. Everybody has a strong opinion on it, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's, it's easily identifiable. So I, I use this to open up the prophetic part of the book because we need to understand how to read prophecy and how to look at it before getting into things like Nephilim and aliens, UFOs, all that stuff. Because if we hold on to our preconceived beliefs so tightly, we can be deceived later on. This is how I looked at it. I, you know, I was brought up Baptist, so I had the pre-trib view. And, you know, I moved from that to post and I moved from that to mid. And uh, then I was confused for a long time. And after years and years of a lot of study and prayer, I, God answered me with, uh, basically nothing. (laughs) (laughs) He He didn't, he didn't give me one clear direction one way or another. And, you know, I, I had to wonder about that for a long time. And I thought, you know, is there something wrong with me or, you know, what's, what's the deal here? It's not that it's just that we're not, we're not given a clear answer in the Bible. We're supposed to trust in God and the warnings that he gives us. We're supposed to be prepared. And when I started looking into the topic of preparedness, that's when I was like, Oh, okay. There are problems with, uh, some of my views here. The pre-tribulation view, which you know, I'll, I'll get into a little bit, a little bit more later. But I, I do lean towards that now. But I don't hold on to it so tightly that that you know I put all my stock in it. Uh, the pre-tribulation view, when I when I was all about that, when I held on to that, you know, so tightly that I wouldn't allow, I, I wouldn't, I would just shut my ears to anything that was different than that. Now, I started thinking about that and thinking, okay, what if, just what if? Actually, I I didn't ask myself this. God asked me this. I was too ignorant and stubborn to ask myself this. But, you know, God kind of asked me in in my spirit, what if the mark of the beast system is instilled and you're still on Earth? And I I started thinking about that. You know, how would I recognize it? Because there's a lot of uh, different views on the mark of the beast, too, and what that is. Nobody knows for absolute sure what it is. We have some details about it. We should be able to recognize it. But when I had when I thought about that, honestly, I thought, well, the way that I feel, you know, the way that I believed, if I'm not raptured, I wouldn't think that it was the mark of the beast. I would think that it couldn't be and I probably would accept it and I probably would lose my soul over it. So, you know, I think that that's going to have to do with the uh, deception that um, this, this apostasy that Paul talked about. But so I had to lay that foundation first before getting into all this apostasy stuff with the Nephilim and all that, because it's like, okay, you know, if you want to believe pre-tribulation rapture, that's fine. You know, I, I believe it. I, I still, I've got some ideas about it, but now if I, uh, if I'm still here and you know, the government's telling me to 
do some crazy thing that's, you know, going to essentially be the mark of the beast. You know, I'm now prepared for that to where I'll know how to say no. And my family is prepared too. we have to learn to have a little bit of humility and be humble about these things to realize that we don't have all the answers. You know, we don't know everything and our preconceived beliefs could be wrong. So that that's what I that's why I use the rapture example in, in that to open up the whole third part of the book. Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah, with obviously the rapture topic, we can go down that rabbit trail and never return because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we will be debating that until it happens or not happens. Yeah, um, exactly. I don't think we've actually really, you know, touched on that topic too much here. And and Basil and I, I don't think we've even talked about it a whole lot uh, just because, you know, it's, it's one of those topics that people, it is touchy. It's very touchy. Yeah. I, I feel like and I've done some writing on this and reading and studying on the topic. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's, we have to sort of redefine this whole idea of a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, the categories, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. almost, it's very restricting of what might be really going on, you know? So I, I like to just kind of say either, you know, lean on either what L.A. Marzulli says, which is, uh, you know, he calls it pan tribulation, which, you know, he says it'll all pan out in the end. Uh, which I like, um, or, you know, for me, from my studies, I've seen that it's the sixth seal of, uh, you know, in the book of revelation is when the rapture happens just, just from my study. So, you know, maybe a way to kind of label it is it's a sixth seal rapture and whether, you know, depending on the timeline and how you layer the timelines in the 70th week and all that stuff, it, uh, it'll determine whether you're, you know, a pre-trib or, you know, you're a heretic mid-trib or, a her- you know, whatever. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I also, you know, I, I can't go on without mentioning the pre-wrath view. Uh, Chris White did a video on that and, and it was very convincing. It was very well done. Uh, pre-wrath has some pretty, pretty compelling arguments, uh, mostly, you know, in, I guess not attacking the pre-trib, but he sort of tries to tie all three positions together. And, and uh, so if anyone's interested in that, you should check that out possibilities are endless yes absolutely and and see i don't think you know when we uh when the bible talks about the rapture i think that it's so vague because that's not the main point like i I don't think that jesus really wants us to focus so much on the timing as for the the reason and the after effects and and all that because we're always told to be prepared right one verse that's commonly misquoted is uh you know, I don't have it right in front of me, but um, basically where, you know, no man will know the day or the hour, you know, that right. Jesus said, and not even he knew the day or the hour. And a lot of people will take that and attribute it to the rapture. But when we uh, look at it, you know, it talks about the heavens passing away and all this stuff. That's that's the day of the Lord. That's when, you know, the veil is brought down in a sense, or the he- the heavens are rolled up like a scroll. And right. that's basically kind of like the last day on earth. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I can see that being as uh after the rapture but i mean i could see that as happening at the same time as the rapture too there's two different possibilities so we're supposed to be prepared because we don't know and that's why i was talking about with the mark of the beast stuff and on the on the same note as that you know people that may hold the post uh post trib or you know whatever you want to call it view there's there could be some danger there too in the sense of unpreparedness because if we think well 
there are still prophecies that have to be fulfilled before this is going to happen. So I can get caught up in this sin and, you know, uh, right. repent for it later because, you know, I don't have to worry about just being caught up one day in the middle of doing whatever, you know, so <laughs> there's a little bit of dangerous thinking there too, but you know, I, I see benefit and I see disadvantages with every view. So it's, it's all about just taking what, Jesus said about it, what Paul said about it, and being being prepared for anything that's biblically possible and just having a strong relationship with God, whatever happens. And that that's how we're going to avoid the deception. It's not going to be the timing of the rapture that it's it's going to be uh, what we do before it happens or when it happens or if it happens. <laughs> yeah. I think what you're referring to Mark 13, 32, but concerning the day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And you know, uh, I think logically speaking, it's like that for a reason. You know, perhaps a few things. Perhaps God didn't reveal it to us because number one, we would become complacent, or you know, there's all sorts of dangers, right, with with knowing exactly the timing. Uh, yeah. But number two, I think He kept it out of the Bible, you know, as a, as a clear timeline to also not give it away to Satan, you know, not yeah. allowing Satan to really be like, Oh, okay. You know, I know when this is going to happen. So, uh, you know, let me ramp up. And, and the other, you know, kind of in conjunction with that, perhaps God is, uh, you know, he hasn't necessarily decided when the rapture is going to happen. You know, he, yeah, he left it open possible. so that, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, well, obviously he knows exactly when it's going to happen, but you know, from, kind of a, you know, a human view, I guess I, you can suggest that maybe, you know, he's looking at how things play out and de depending on how we respond, you know, on our end as the church, uh, you know, maybe, maybe he goes, you know what, pre-trib, you guys aren't, you guys aren't going to make it, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can totally agree with that because I mean, even in, uh, you know, uh, when God was going to basically kill all the people after they came out of Egypt and start all over, Moses kind of convinced him not to. Right, right. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure God knew that was going to happen, but still, in a sense, his mind was changed. Same with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Abraham talking to him about, you know, if there's 50 righteous or, or lot or whatever, and if there's 10. And, right. Uh, you know, so in a sense, you know, there might be things that God might still be open to one way or another. Um, I I definitely believe he, you know, knows. But like you said, in a, in a more human sense, yeah, I, I could I could see looking at it like that, too. Right. Well, OK, so here it is. You drop the bomb. It takes 12 chapters to get there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, you get into the Nephilim. And of course, that's a really hot topic. You know, it's it's uh, if you know if you got Nephilim in the title of your book or something, and then you know people are gonna flock to it and stuff. And so, what is from your research? What did you find out about the Nephilim? What was your uh, where did your study lead you on that topic? Well, it led me. Well, it all it all starts in Genesis six, as you know we are probably well aware of now, but. Uh, when, when I was raised in the Baptist church, we, we did hold the view that it was literal angels with literal human women. So there wasn't the Sethite theory stuff that I didn't have to deal with that. I didn't, I actually didn't even hear that until like I was like, I was in my twenties or something. And by then I already had a enough understanding of it to see how ridiculous that was. But <laughs> so the sub. The subject of the Nephilim was actually existed in your church as a as well, a kid. It 
No, well, let's see. It, it was there. Well, it was. I, I'll say this: it wasn't denied. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't ever taught about. <laughs> but when, on the rare occasion that they would ever go to the Old Testament, if they were reading in Genesis, they would read over that, and they usually just left it alone. Um, but if I had a question about it, then they would they would say, "Yeah, that's you know literal angels and and human women." But that was like the extent of it. Nothing like the word Nephilim never came up, and uh, we just kind of understood. I, I remember in in Sunday school we'd have these little cartoon books of like these giants of Goliath, and he was like a little bit taller than David, and <laughs> you know it's just this un unbiblical like kind of view of what the giants were. Just you know. It, but once I started reading for myself, I was like, oh, these, these guys were huge. <laughs> you know, I mean, he towered over David. It wasn't that he was just some seven, eight foot tall guy. It wasn't comparable to uh, giganticism that we might have nowadays in, in some people. I mean, this this was like huge beyond beyond belief. And I believe the pre-flood uh, giants were even bigger than that. But anyway, when God brought me through Genesis six, it's actually kind of kind of funny that you brought up uh, L.A. because that's kind of what opened me up to it originally. Um, I was first time, first time I ever heard about that. I, I was watching um, it's supernatural with Sid Roth. I was, uh, that just happened to be on the TV and it was a day like any other. And uh, this was, this was, I was still kind of in uh, halfway in halfway out of my traditional Baptist mindset. I was just kind of doing my own thing and trying my best to learn at a snail's pace. <laughs> and um yeah, I saw this guy, L.A. Marzulli, on it's, it's Supernatural, and he was talking about the Mark of the Beast. And I've always been interested in prophecy, so I was like, oh, okay, I'll check this out. And it was that show that just completely, like, it it honestly changed my life. <laughs> Before that, I, I wasn't a biblical researcher. I wasn't writing books. I, I was barely even reading the Bible. But when he started talking about the Nephilim and all this, it was like, is that really in the Bible? And, of course, I had to go and look at it myself and research it out and it's like wow yeah it's all over in there like i can't believe i missed this big of a piece of uh ancient biblical history and prophecy because of all the prophetic implications so it, it totally transformed my my life in a sense you know i really believe in, in my life god used la to uh kind of steer me into where God wanted me to be. And that actually was confirmed later when I actually got to meet LA and talk to him. But, uh, so that's why I left that for the third part of the book, because it, it is such a big topic and it takes a lot of foundation before being able to accept it. Cause again, when I was in the traditional mindset, if, if I had the question, you know, well, what are these giants or, you know, what, and if they were telling us, oh, well, they're the Nephilim and, you know, they're going to come back someday. And, you know, I'd say, well, where, where is that? And I, I would have had no frame of reference for it. So that's, that's what right. led me into, that's what led me there. Yeah. I, it's funny. We, uh, Basil, I don't know if you ever heard the Nephilim be brought up at, uh, you know, our location there. Uh, no, but I have, it's actually a kind of a funny story. You know, our church goes through the Bible, you know, the one year Bible type thing. Oh, and okay. we, we were, <laughs> we went through, obviously, you know, it's, it's one of those books that they give you that has, you know, uh, a few verses from Genesis and then a, a few from the new Testament. And it, you know, it kind of just swaps all over, but you get through the Bible in a year and, you know, we'll do it together as a church and whatnot. Well, obviously, you know, the Genesis six is fairly early on and, uh, we were doing like a staff meeting type thing 
And one of the church leaders got up and was talking and, oh, oh you know, this is a, uh, and this is just within the staff. It's not, you know, out in public, but he goes, yeah, you know, did you guys do your reading? What the heck is the Nephilim, right? <laughs> and that was it. That That's all, <laughs> that's all we heard. Right. Yeah. It was, and, it was silly. It was and very I, silly. I, I was, I, I had to bite my, my lip not to start just, you know, uh, Genesis well, six, uh, the sons of God. And, uh, oh, yeah, man. yeah. I've been there. I've been there too. It's, it's tough not to say something when you know that the person isn't going to accept it. I tried to, it's, it, you know, it's almost like re-witnessing to somebody. And I, I kind of had is. that experience with my, uh, my neighbor, he's, you know, he's in the church. He's actually part of the, one of the leaders of the church that I attend. And the church I go to is non-denominational and they're, they're, uh, you know, I, they're good. I, I, I like them, but they, they, they don't focus too much on prophecy and stuff. So, well, I, I had my neighbor over and, you know, he was a, he was a deacon of the church. So I was going to ask him about, you know, what would I have to do to be able to speak in the church and, you know, maybe take a Friday night, night and talk about this stuff. So I, I tried to start out real slow with him <laughs> with this Nephilim stuff. And I started in Genesis and I kind of tried to explain things and all this. And it, it the, the conversation kind of ended when I heard him say, well, you know, it's not really important to read the book of Revelation because we're not going to be here for it anyway. And I was like, oh, oh, oh man. <laughs> And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere with this. So I was like, ah, well, yeah, I, all right. Well, I, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> we just kind of, kind of ended it there. So I was like, all right, if he, if he's gonna come from it from that perspective, because I used to believe that too. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, uh, if he's coming from it from that perspective, there's no way he's gonna accept this stuff now. You know, with just a two-hour conversation. Um, so I. I you know, kind of used the first 11 chapters of the book to get into this Nephilim stuff for that very reason. If by chance a more traditional person like that might pick up my book, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that with that progression, it'll, it'll make sense because yeah, I mean the topic of the Nephilim, it's, it's like the missing piece of prophecy in the Bible within the church. It's yeah. never talked about. And now I understand why I believe the enemy is obfuscating it from the church because it's, so prevalent and so important and if you don't have the understanding of who the nephilim are and what they are and what they might be now and that whole thing it's going to be in my opinion uh very easy to be deceived when this apostasy comes yeah this perception definitely and you know it's funny because it's sort of the elephant in the room you yeah. know it's like it's this big topic that that really doesn't get addressed and i think of course i think satan has done a good job, not just with the church, but just having the, you know, once the scientific revolution happened and, and, you know, uh, empiricism and all these things came into play, the, the cover up of some of these, some of the remains and things that, you know, we hear rumors about. And even actually, you know, there's a, a guy named Steve Quayle that I think our, you know, our audience is fairly familiar with. And he wrote a book called giants or Genesis six giants. And he documents like hundreds of articles that came out you know, over the last 100, 200 years that talked about literally, you know, giant bones that were discovered and things of that nature. And of course, some of them may be hoaxes, some of them may be sensationalized stories and things like that, but it's definitely out there. And the fact that it's not discussed and the fact that it's sort of almost uh, ridiculed, if you sort of talk about that, um, you know, I, I think it's a testament to <laughs> Satan's ability to not have us really be awake to that topic. And, and I think that's why it has something 
I think you'd agree, Josh, that it's a big part of the end times deception. What, if any, verses did you find that referenced the Nephilim that you didn't expect to, or you know, you read it before and knew about it, but you know, are there any verses that jumped out at you, you know, with this new context of understanding? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, all over the place. You know, it all starts in Genesis six, and that's our framework of who the Nephilim are. And you know, basically, if you if you have any listeners that don't know the, you know, Genesis six really tells the story. But basically, what happened was uh, some angels fell from heaven and uh, mated with human women, and the offspring of that unholy union was these giants, and they're they're called the the Nephilim. So. You know, and that kind of goes back to church tradition, too, because church tradition tells us that angels are these ethereal beings that have no kind of physicality. But when we look at the Bible, and this is what really surprised me, because I, I used to believe that. And uh, when I actually looked in the Bible about what angels are, they absolutely have a physical body. They they, uh, you know, they're we can kind of look at them as extra dimensional beings instead of like these kind of ethereal mystic wisps of, you know, nothing. And it, we can look at them as like they're extra dimensional. You know, they, they have a body that they can, that they can operate in our realm. I mean, even, uh, even God himself used a body when he spoke with uh, Abraham, they, you know, they ate and, and all that. So the angels have access to a, I don't know how it all works. I, you know, got some ideas, but you know, they they have access to like a a three dimensional body, and it, you know, it looks human. Um, when we read about angels in the spiritual sense, and you know what they look like in heaven, it's it's a lot different. But so that that was a big surprise to me because I, I wondered, you know, how can an angel mate with a human? It's like, well, they actually do have a physical body. One thing that also uh, surprised me was like, okay, if God didn't want angels mating with humans why did he make it possible you know why why did he even give angels you know sex organs or whatever if he didn't want that happening right it's like well how many commandments does god give that are possible for us to break you know i mean we have you know over 600 some odd in the in the old testament each one of those is possible you know it was possible for them to break and is possible now and it's it's out of obedience it's because we have free will it does no good for god to give a commandment if it's not possible to break it if he takes away the free will to even break it and that goes into how you know what true love is and you know god truly loves us and you know he loves the angels too so he, he gives us all free will we have the option to fall so uh so a group of angels uh, decided to go against God's law on this because early on in Genesis, God set, set it up where each reproduces after its own kind. And it gives some examples of animals and all that. But I believe that that has to do with angels, too. Not that angels themselves reproduce, but that they were never meant to reproduce with mankind. So. Because angels really have no use of reproduction. They're they're eternal. They, they're not like us where we die and we have to, you know, keep the species going. It, it doesn't work like that with them. They they have no use for it. So uh, that was uh, that was the first initial cluster of surprises for me with this whole thing was that angels have a physical body. They have genetics. They have a type of DNA that that can be mixed with our own. So. When I understood that in Genesis, it brought me to um, a lot of other 
passages, even in the New Testament, such as Jude, the book, of, well, really the whole book of Jude, but verses six through eight talks about the, talks about what happened and the judgment and goes into the bottomless pit and all that stuff. So that brought me to back to the Old Testament because I, I wanted to, I really wanted to understand, you know, is, are these giants, are these Nephilim just in chapter six? Because when, when I understood chapter six, it really seemed like the flood was all about the Nephilim. You know, it says that all flesh was corrupted. Yeah. And when we go back to the Hebrew as what corrupted really means, it's genetically pure. It doesn't mean just immoral or, or you know, that they were just living in sin. That was a part of it. But that, that word corruption actually means uh, or uh, without blemish. Yes, thank you. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. It's it's without blemish, and it's the same word that was used for the the sacrifices and you know all that stuff. So it's it's a genetic impurity that ravished the world, and it was through this Nephilim gene because the the enemy, you know, Satan. Well. I'll say angels. We'll we'll get into the Satan side of it later, but angels, in a sense, uh, tampered with the human gene pool, and and um, it was basically a world full of Nephilim or people infected with the Nephilim gene. And the reason that they did that was they were trying to prevent the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Jesus had to be born through you know the the seed of the woman. That's what was try- that's what they were trying to corrupt because if they would have been able to corrupt the entire world with Nephilim genes, Jesus would not have been able to be born because he wouldn't be able to be born unblemished. He would have been blemished. And therefore, he would have been unfit to die for our sins. So that was Satan's plan. He figured, well, if I corrupt the whole world, I can prove God a liar and set up my kingdom above his. It really shows how twisted Satan is. Um, So that that really was the whole point of the, the flood and why Noah was spared and and his family but the interesting thing is we see the giants show up again after the flood right that was that was my next question was where uh there's there's a lot of different theories on that you know uh for example uh, i think doug hamp believes that there was a second incursion uh and i think the opposing view it with with rob skiba who i think he's gotten a lot of slack for this and i don't think he deserves all the slack i think he's just trying to be a good researcher but you know he believes that one of the wives may have contained nephilim blood um, where's your, what's your position on that? You know, with, uh, with, with Doug, I, I agree with him on almost, on almost everything, <laughs> but that's not <laughs> one of them. <laughs> oh boy. And, uh, you know, I mean, and I, I love Doug to death. He's a great guy and he's, he's, I mean, he's way like above where I am now and intellectually, you know, in my opinion, but I just can't see, I can't find the evidence for it. I can't, you know, in, uh, in numbers and well, even Genesis and all this stuff, when we look at who the Nephilim were and you know the their tribes and everything are named, we can trace back uh, who their fathers were, and they were all human. We can trace it back to Noah, actually, uh, his son um, Ham. Right. Uh, well, well, it all tr- it all traces back to Canaan, you know, son of Ham, son of Noah. But so something happened there, and you know, I don't believe it was multiple incursions because Canaan was a man. He wasn't a woman. So I just don't see where a second group of angels really fit into this when we know who all of all of the fathers of these Nephilim tribes were. Something happened 
uh, with Kanan or it, it and I've heard I've heard Rob's um, argument too, and I I think that that's far more likely than multiple incursions. I, I definitely I can see a lot more evidence for that. Uh, something that I've been kind of thinking about recently, and um, you know I, I believe that you know it's going to take some more research, and I'll probably write about it in my next book, Shadow. Uh, we know that, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit in, the, in my book because I, the next chapter I talk about Nimrod and all that. You know, we read that uh, Nimrod, Nimrod did something to defile himself, and in essence, he became Nephilim. Right. And I, I, I'm wondering if it's possible because we have that reference, so we know that back in that time, I, I don't know how he did it, but we know that it was at least possible that he did that. And I'm wondering if maybe it's possible that. Canaan did that too before Nimrod because Nimrod is uh you know a descendant of Canaan so maybe Ham or maybe Canaan did defiled themselves in some way maybe that's how Nimrod learned how to do it I I don't know I mean it's highly speculative of course and there's not a whole lot of biblical uh support for that but regardless of how it happened it happened they came back <laughs> right and uh so we have post flood giants as well and um so yeah right now and, and i i agree with you i don't believe that rob deserves all the slack that he's gotten for that because they're i mean the evidence that it's just it's everywhere yeah. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot more evidence for that and i cannot find one bible verse that talks about a second incursion yeah and also <laughs> it it causes issues when you talk about you know the angels that sinned and they're you know uh put in prison in tartarus yeah. Right? I mean, did God, you know, was it a continual patrol system going on? And, you know, like, oh, you know, there they go again. Let's go round them up and take them to jail. <laughs> you know, is it, or was it, you know, the one time thing and the flood? And, and also, you know, I, I heard somebody, I can't remember where I heard this. Uh, I apologize if you're listening and, and, you know, I'm stealing your stuff. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to, but uh, just another theory is that once the flood happened and post flood, the whole earth, you know, the, the waters come back down and, and everything else, there had to be carcasses of Nephilim everywhere, right? Yeah. So, in essence, they could have some access to Nephilim genes. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and that goes back to Ecclesiastes uh, 1 9, I think it's 1 9, uh, that basically says, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And right. if it has been in the past, it, it, it's going to be again, basically, you know, just history repeats itself. If we have access to this technology and if we're to believe the Bible for the literal book that it is, then we have to accept that they probably had this technology back in ancient times, too. Yeah. We have it now. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. So when we're, you know, making all these genetic hybrids like the 150 in Britain and so on and, you know, creating these ligers and these uh, human animal embryos and all this. Ligers. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, they're real, man. They actually made them. It's it's crazy. <laughs> I know. Real. I've been I've, I've seen the website. They're incredibly scary animals. Yeah. They're they're the they're the biggest cat in the world now, and they're not even like they're not natural. They're not supposed to be real. It's it's weird. Right. right. But if uh, if we have the technology to do this now, and if we're gonna take Ecclesiastes as as literal, and I I do, I absolutely do, then we have to you know at least accept the possibility that they had access to that technology in the past. And I can't I for the life of me I can't think of any other way that Nimrod would have been able to defile himself unless he somehow got a hold of Nephilim genes 
and it probably you know was due to that because there there would have been carcasses everywhere i mean it the whole world <laughs> right so i mean there was no shortage there um if they had access to the technology why wouldn't they mess with that stuff so yeah i, I absolutely agree there yeah yeah and it's and it's also possible that they're building the tower of babel fairly soon after the flood right it doesn't take very long for them to start <laughs> building the tower and it's like well yeah. how did they do that and uh, again it's it's possible that the whatever technology may have been left behind or you know in ruins they may be uh, they may have been trying to uh, rebuild it if you will and this whole idea of god you know dispersing language and everything like that i think satan's been hard at work through a lot of secret societies and and ancient mystery religions and things like that and uh, the topic of alchemy uh, that i'm tackling for my film the whole idea is to sort of rebuild this tower of babel and sort of regain this access to the heavens you know yeah. type thing so now where do you see nephilim as far as today like i know you you sort of touched on it but yeah. Do you think that there's actually like literal modern day Nephilim, you know, cause, cause the elites, you know, the, a lot of the elites, we hear about some of the, the rumors about how they call themselves Beneha Nephilim, you know, we're the sons of Nephilim, you know, and they believe that they actually, you know, have some of this blood, you know, in their bloodline. But where, where do you uh, land on that topic? Well, the way I look at it is, you know, the, these, uh, we see the post flood Nephilim. And if we think about, you know, there isn't really, at least not that I can find, a direct Bible reference that says that they were all killed off. You know, there, there's there's room in the Bible for an escape of some kind. And we can uh, even look at a lot of, you know, not, not that we should hold, you know, other cultures, myths and stuff to the same level as the Bible, but we can look to i mean they all agree that there were a giant race you know at some time even and we found we found like you were saying earlier we found bones and stuff and so i believe that they've had a long time to figure out what they were going to do i think satan has had a long time to figure out what he was going to do and if they had that technology back then and actually there is biblical proof that well i'll say biblical evidence i i consider it proof because i can't see any other way that this is possible but there's biblical evidence that they had genetic technology because we read in i believe it's numbers 13 30 it's somewhere in numbers 13 where it talks about they were going into the land of the giants and it makes this odd, the bible makes this odd mention that there were uh i believe it was grapes that were like the size of their heads or something like that. Where does, where does that come in? You know, we don't have that. Like, right. how, how is that possible? I yeah. mean, you know, that that's all after nice. the flood. So even if there was like some kind of natural giganticism before the flood, that wouldn't have, that would have all been done away with after the flood. The only way I can figure that they would have had fruit and stuff that's that big is if they genetically enhanced it i mean how else we can't do that nowadays so if they had that level of technology back then imagine what kind of technology they could have access to and imagine with all the time that they've had the type of deception that they could instill in humanity you know i mean i would say if they had this much time to develop their technology and they're clearly you know working with their false gods which would be the fallen angels they you know we read all in the old testament that they uh worshiped their false gods and their um fallen angel fathers and all this stuff if they had time to work with them 
and had these thousands of years, what is their level of technology today? And what is the only thing that we see that could be a representation of that technology? <laughs> so right. I, I kind of started yeah. looking at it from that standpoint. And I, I get, I really, I'm jumping ahead a little bit in my books. I really get into that more in the last chapter, but I connect the, the biblical Nephilim with modern day UFO phenomena and all this alien deception stuff, because What's interesting is the reports that come from people who have been abducted or have seen UFOs or all this, when they've had contact with these beings, it seems like they only really want to talk about two things. <laughs> they want to talk about their genetic breeding, like almost like they're proud of it, uh, and that they are mixing themselves with us to create this new master race and all this stuff. And they also want to talk about the... Uh, that there is no God, that the Christian religion is wrong. All the other religions are fine, but Christianity is just flat out wrong. And those are the only two things that they really seem consistent to want to talk about. So yeah. it's like, okay, what, what's, what's more likely from a biblical standpoint? Is it more likely that there are aliens from another planet that are flying over here to brag about their technology and who for some reason can't seem to reproduce naturally and all they want to do is uh, dump on Christianity and talk about how dumb that is or is it more likely that these are extra dimensional beings who know there's a God but have no chance at redemption and who have consistently wanted to prove God a liar because they believe that's their only hope of uh, escaping God's judgment is to prove him to be unjust and unfair and not fit to uh, put forth judgment and that they're trying to deceive the world and us and that they, they have access to this tech technology because they've had all this time and I mean they're bringing knowledge right out of heaven anyway because they left their first estate so they were in good standing with God at some point so I mean they're extremely intellectual so when I looked at it like that it's like that's the only thing that I can find in the Bible that consistently answers this UFO phenomenon. Because that, that was one of the biggest questions I had when I was a kid that I was always told, just take it on faith, is that are aliens real? <laughs> and I grew up thinking that there just wasn't an answer in the Bible because I wasn't given one from the preacher or from the congregation in the church. You know, they just didn't know. But that was my fault because I was putting more stock in man to answer my questions than God. When I started asking God, he was more than happy to give me the answer. And I mean, now I, I've got so much information on it. I didn't know that there was all that in the Bible. So, you know, that, that's kind of where I take that throughout the book. Right. So are you drawing um, parallels between Nephilim and UFOs or where do you stand on that? Do you think Nephilim are walking the earth? Yeah, I, I think, I think it's possible. Um, I look at, see, the, the, the aliens themselves uh, that, that are piloting these UFOs, I could see them as either being fallen angels or demons who have a type of biological clone suit, in a sense, or just modern-day Nephilim. There's a lot of different theories about that, and I go into a few of them in the book. But, yeah, I, I definitely draw a, a parallel between the two. And especially just with their nature, you know, God, God tells us that we'll know his people by their fruit. But I, And I, I believe that we could look at that and say we'll know the enemy by his fruit, too. And when we 
see just how anti-Christian these supposed alien beings are, but they have no problem with the other religions. And when I see that they're doing the same things that the Nephilim and uh in uh, the Old Testament we're doing with this genetic tampering and all this, and that they're saying that they want, their goal is to merge genetically with us to create this master race. I'm thinking, well, that, that's got to be the Nephilim. I mean, who, who else is it going to be? Either it's that or it is some alien race that God b- just didn't bother to warn us about and that's interacting with us. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's, that's, I definitely draw that parallel. Well, excellent. Now, later on in the book, you talk about the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, what are your thoughts? Who do you think it is? What is what's your... Uh, What's your train of thought on that? Yeah, I've been through a lot of different uh, people's uh, theories on who the Antichrist is going to be. And I think I think it's one of those things we're just not going to know for sure until he's revealed, you know, pretty much just like the Bible says. But I, I think that there needs to be a distinction made because, you know, the, the term Antichrist, you know, we use it in our culture. But it's, you know, it's it's almost different in the Bible in the sense that there's only uh, there's only four verses that actually use the word antichrist and it's not in revelation not in daniel <laughs> it's uh right. in first, first and second john and you know he's t- in in those passages he's talking about that you know you've heard that this antichrist character is is going to come but i'm telling you now that there are antichrists like all around and here's how to define them you know anybody that denies the the father and the son is is essentially an antichrist so we can look at what the spirit of antichrist is and through through that knowledge and being able to identify antichrists, uh, and I'll say lowercase a <laughs> in the sense, uh, in our in our own lives, we can come to a conclusion of of some definite key features that the the beast, the end time antichrist, is going to have. Uh, one of them is you know denying the Jesus and and the Father, of course, and. Uh, Hatred of the Jews is a big one. That that's uh, spirit of Antichrist is all over that. Um, so as far as who the Antichrist is, I, you know, I have no idea. But I know that there are a lot of shadows, and one of the biggest shadows that I've been able to find is in uh, the story of Nimrod. And I know uh, people like Rob Skiba believes that the the literal Nimrod is going to be the end time. Uh, Antichrist. I know that he's gotten a lot of slack for that too. And again, I don't believe that he should because it's. I I can see that as a possibility. I mean, you know, I think that there's still some uh, there's still some uh, unanswered things in that in that line of thinking. But you know, there's unanswered things in all of them. I but I, I believe it's going to be one of those things. We'll we'll see when we get there. But God gives us these shadows in these in these stories as to the attributes and the behaviors and all this. And with Nimrod, I, as far back as I could go, that was the first biblical reference I could find where there was like, yeah, this guy definitely had <laughs> the spirit of Antichrist. Um, I think the traditional Tower of Babel story is way different than the biblical Tower of Babel story. The traditional one that I was brought up with is basically just... Um, yeah, you know, all, all the people got together and they built a really tall tower. God didn't like it, so he knocked it down, threw everyone around. 
<laughs> I mean, I, that was basically it. It was ridiculous. It's like there's it doesn't answer anything. It's like what? Why? Why'd that make him mad? And why isn't he angry now when we build Tall Tower? Why didn't he knock down the Great Pyramid? Of, of, you know, what I mean? <laughs> so it it like created more questions than answers. So um, you know, I started when I started looking into it myself. Uh, the first thing that I found was interesting is it says um and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech <laughs> that took some prayer on my part because i didn't that to me sounds like it was the same thing it's saying the same thing but again this goes back to why it's so important to go to the original uh languages the word um language there uh the earth, the whole earth was of one language comes from the hebrew word and again i'm i'm not like a biblical or uh i'm not a uh hebrew scholar or a greek scholar in any sense of the word <laughs> i'm just a guy with a strong's concordance so this is something anybody can do so i you know i would hope that those listening wouldn't be intimidated by this cuz it's it's super easy it, you know you don't have to be a scholar it'd probably help but <laughs> i'm sure i'm not 100% right on everything well, but it's the it's the beauty of the time oh, i guess the some positives of the times we're living in is that uh, we all have access to concordances. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we have access, access to uh, the Doug Hamps of the world that actually do know the languages very well. And, you know, that have written a lot about it and it's, you know, so that's, that's a big help too. Um, but yeah, the, the first word, their language comes from the Hebrew word sepet. And that does mean language, like what we talk with, you know, but the word speech comes from debar and it means like a, like a way of thinking or, uh, like-mindedness. And I, I would say religion. So the whole earth was of one language and one religion. Then that, and that's the difference. That's when, when I came to that conclusion, I was like, oh, that reminds me of Revelation because that's what the end times are going to be like. Maybe this is a shadow uh, and something that can be compared to it. So when we read on, we find that the people, um, let me see here, Genesis 11, 6 through 9. Nope, Genesis 11, 3 through 4, sorry. Uh, they. The people of the earth, they, they uh, said that they wanted to build this tower and the city and all that, that whose top may reach un, unto heaven. And they give the reason why. It says, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the traditional view of that is that, oh, they were afraid that they were going to be you know, scattered among the earth and their languages changed. They must have known what God was going to do. That's not what the Hebrew says, though. Um, the Hebrew, uh, looking at that part, scattered abroad actually means dashed to pieces <laughs> their view of god was this maniacal like monster that was gonna take out a sword and just cut them all up into literal pieces and kill them that's what they were afraid of so it's like you know we have to think where did they get where did they get that you know obviously it's it's from um you know not having a right relationship with god but i would attribute it back to uh nimrod i don't know if nimrod got it from canaan uh, you know or how that you know the bible's not specific on how that twisted view of god came to be but by that time it was and i believe that we're going to see that more in the end the end times too and when we uh look at what these aliens are telling people you know they say that there's no god but there's like a force in the uh, an impersonal force in the universe that we can tap into if we want and all this so you know it's it's just a twisted view of what god is so that that was uh, definitely interesting to me and uh so going back to the antichrist we find out that 
Nimrod did something to himself to defile himself. The verse, <clears throat> excuse me, the verse is uh, Genesis 10, 8 through 9. And uh, in English, it just it just says, Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, where it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That's a really easy passage to gloss over because it doesn't really seem like there's much there. It's like, okay, you know, Nimrod was a mighty warrior. Okay. But again, when we look at the Hebrew, it is something that it, it, we lose the meaning in English. Uh, the word began there comes from the word halal, meaning uh, to bore or wound, dissolve, profane, break, you know, all this stuff. Uh, so when it says he began, it means he profaned or defiled uh, in some way. So he did, he defiled himself in some way to be a mighty one. Now, the word mighty one there is uh, really interesting in itself. That comes from the word gibor, uh, meaning powerful by implication, warrior, tyrant, also giant. Now, the word gibor doesn't always have to mean giant, but giant does come from that word gibor, because uh, even David was um, was uh, called a, a mighty one, you know, in a sense. So we have to take it in context, but it still it has that reference. He began to be this this gibor or this this giant and when we pair that with the word from begin he it, that's where the meaning starts to become apparent he did defiled himself in some way to become in a sense nephilim we can look at the word hunter which comes from the hebrew word saeed meaning to chase also uh, catch for food uh there's a lot of varying theories on that but when it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord in the Hebrew, it's he was like a a uh, a Gabor hunter or a giant hunter. So the question comes up, well, was he a giant who just hunted or was he a hunter of giants? I, I think it's both. I think that he did something to himself to become Nephilim and he uh, he hunted other Nephilim. I it, it goes to the whole cannibalistic thing, and I don't know the reason for it. I don't know if it was religious purposes or to strike fear in the heart of his enemies or just because he could. But in Numbers 32 or uh, 1332, there is reference to that. It says, um, uh, the land which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. So the, the land eateth up the inhabitants. Well, it was inhabited by Nephilim, so I, I take that as... You know, there's some kind of cannibalistic tendencies there. But the main the main point is that Nimrod did something to become this kind of half human part Nephilim, you know, with angelic, <laughs> some kind of uh, angelic powers of some sort. And he used that to his van advantage to uh, um, rise up as the, the leader of this uh, this worldwide system with Babel in the city and all that. Now, that's not something that's traditionally told because all of those details are found in the Hebrew, and I, I go way more into it in the book. But uh, we can look at that as a shadow for the coming Antichrist, the, the actual Antichrist, the beast. And I believe that's what it means when it says that Satan gave the beast all of his power and all that. I don't believe that when the original angels fell and mated with humans. I don't believe that Satan was a part of that group. Now, I, I believe he was probably fallen by that point. Absolutely. But I don't believe that Satan himself mated with 
uh, a human woman yet because he's not in the bottomless pit. And we know what the uh, judgment of that is. So I believe in the future, Satan, through some probably through some sort of genetic means, is going to offer his DNA to wh whoever he chooses as the Antichrist, in a sense. And it's going to be a Nimrod situation all over again. This person is going to accept the DNA of uh, Satan. And I, I think that's also how Satan is able to uh, kind of get away from the judgment of the bottomless pit um, for a little while, at least. Because <clears throat> he's uh, when Jesus comes back, they're thrown in, he's thrown into the bottomless pit, but only for a thousand years. Whereas the rest of them that actually had like direct sexual relation they're just in there forever. But right. uh, yeah, um, so Satan gets out. I, I think it's I think he's kind of got like a little loophole thing going where like it's, if it's genetics, maybe the punishment isn't quite as harsh. You know, I don't know. But uh, so we can look at that. So when when this stuff does start to happen, then we'll know who the Antichrist is, because I believe after the Antichrist uh, accepts Satan's DNA and becomes Nephilim himself, I think in some capacity, he's he's the Antichrist is going to offer his new form DNA to the rest of the world. I believe that's what the mark of the beast is. And I think that's how this ties into this whole alien deception of uh, hybrid aliens and humans and all this stuff. I think that's all going to be part of this uh, this great deception. Right. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's funny. I can't help but think about our last episode and uh, our interview with Catherine Dahlstrom in, a, in her fiction book, because... Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I mean, your description of a potential Antichrist being a Nephilim, uh, you know, combining the, the genes from Satan himself giving a man... A, I, I don't know. There's just too much there overlapping, even though I know she said that it's fiction. And, we'll, you know, we won't get into that here. But I think um, you've tied together a lot of things, and I feel like your research is... You know, it seems to be confirming a lot of what uh, some of the things I've found and a lot of um, other researchers. You know, one thing, the, the spirit of Antichrist, uh, you know, it's it's First John and Second John, the word Antichrist is used like, you know, four or five times or something. But Second John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a, is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So it's like, Okay, so the spirit of Antichrist is out there. Anyone who denies, you know, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is a type of Antichrist. I mean, you know, we're, we're walking around with people that <laughs> may be inspired by the spirit of Antichrist. It's kind of a, a frightening thought, right? You know, so, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's another point that I want to bring up, and, and I don't know if you've come across this in your research, and I actually asked Doug Hamp to look at the Hebrew of this uh, passage here that I was looking at Genesis four one, and this is right after God gives the first you know prophecy about you know Jesus coming and being the Messiah, and yeah Genesis four one it says now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord and I asked Doug Hamp to take a look at the Hebrew there I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And really, the Hebrew words that are there are gotten, man, of, Lord. And the word of is et, and it actually means with. So oh, wow. I have gotten man with the Lord. So, and I know it says that Adam knew Eve, right? So you know that, the, the, you know, they had their sexual relation there. But it's interesting that Eve said that she got a man with 
the Lord. And my theory was that, hey, I, and I asked Doug, and he, you know, he he didn't come to any conclusions, but it made him stop and ponder, which I was like, yes, I made him think about something. You know, <laughs> it's always good when <laughs> you get someone like him to to ponder a, a thought. But my my idea was that uh, perhaps Cain and uh, Cain was sort of the first person who thought he was the the Messiah. You know, and I think Eve might have thought she, uh, he was the Messiah as well, because it comes right after the prophecy, right? That you know, the, yeah. your seed is going to crush the the head of Satan, uh, and I I kind of feel like that's where a lot of the mystery religions come from. This mother son kind of thing. Even you know, even the Gnostics talk about you know Mary and Jesus in that way. Um, yeah. And I guess the reason why I bring it up is because you know the this idea that potentially if the uh, okay, hold on. I'm trying to, th- this is, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in revelation. It talks about the, the seven and then the eighth, which was one of the seven. Right. And yeah. uh, the theory that comes from that is that, you know, it, again, it, it ties to the Nimrod aspect of, you know, it, whichever was the one that received the head wound and, and uh, you know, cause most, most scholars and, and people believe that the head wound happens, you know, later, like the, after the antichrist has already arrived, then he gets killed and then he, you know, miraculously lives or whatever. But, you know, of course, uh, with, with your theory and with Rob's and stuff, it's a different idea that maybe that head wound was something that killed him initially and maybe Nimrod. And I think, I, I believe Rob Skiba has pointed out some kind of, uh, other ancient myths that, that, uh, contain some stories of Cain being slain by a sword or something to the head or not, I'm sorry, not Cain, uh, Nimrod. All right, so so what I was trying to get at was perhaps the the idea of Cain being, you know, somebody that may come back, not just Nimrod, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm th- this is complete speculation on my part, and I haven't done enough study to uh, to get into it. But it also it also shows that Cain thought he was the Messiah too, because I think later when Abel comes around and God accepts Abel's offering over Cain's, right? I mean, I think I understand why Cain would be so upset because he thought he was the Messiah and he thought, you know, God was going to accept him. He was the one that's going to bring redemption. And, you know, what, why are you going, you know, why are you accepting my little brother's offering over me, the Messiah, you know? Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. I never thought about it before. It it would explain why uh, Satan went after Cain to make Cain sin by killing Abel right. instead of the other way around, because you would think, you know, if Abel was the favored son, then Satan would want to go after Abel and, you know, have Abel be the murderer to, to show, Hey, you know, your, your favored uh, creation here fell, you know, that usually seems to be Satan's uh, game plan. Right. But yeah. I mean, he just went after Cain to do that and that, yeah, that would, that would fit. Yeah. And never- so that's, that's just speculation. And, and, you know, could it be that, I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen, you know, uh, at the end? But it seems like the the beast, and we read about in Daniel, the beast or the Antichrist figure, it, I believe it says something to the effect of he he basically collects a lot of artifacts, right? He, he sort of, you know, he raids a lot of these countries uh, surrounding Jerusalem on his way to the Temple Mount, and he kind of, I think, I can't find the passage in, in front of me, but I believe there's a passage, I believe in Daniel 9 or 11, one of those two, where he talks about he's getting, uh, where he gains the the treasures or something. Hold on, <laughs> I'm butchering this section. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, that's okay. I, you know, that's I, I completely understand. If I don't usually, if I don't have a, a Bible verse right in front of me, like laid out, I I butcher it too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard. Um, 
here you go. Uh, Daniel eleven forty three. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. So it seems like while d- during his conquest, he's, he basically gathers all these artifacts, you know? Yeah. And so you know, who knows what kind of stuff? I mean, the can you imagine the Ark of the Covenant is found? And, you know, I mean, there's yeah. <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff that, that could happen. And, uh, you know, all the legends of, uh, and it's interesting that it's Egypt that, that is mentioned here because, you know, there's a lot of the, uh, the rumors and stuff that goes on about, you know, uh, there's there's a chamber underneath the Sphinx, and and uh, it contains the lost knowledge from Atlantis and yeah. things like that. So, and that's why I think you know th- I, that's why I brought up Cain is this possibility of uh, being part of the end times deception in some way of like you know maybe he's the one that uh, they get his DNA or something. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just completely speculating at this point. Yeah, I mean that's that's really interesting. That's. Uh... I, I think you've just uh, provoked some a few hours of study in me in the future. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, you know, and that, it kind of makes sense with you know the whole uh, the first shall be or the first shall be last right. kind of deal. Exactly. Too. Exactly. That's that, that was falls yeah. in line with that. Yeah, that was the kicker for that theory. But uh, let, let's move on and get back to the book. And uh, Basil, are you still there? I'm still here, man. All just right. soaking it up. <laughs> <laughs> just it up like a sponge. Okay, so I know you go through Ezekiel and stuff, and and uh, for the audience, we're not going to talk about Ezekiel prophecies because you're going to have to buy the book to uh, read that section there. Where do you <laughs> land? Where do you land after uh, you introduce the Nephilim? You go through some prophecies. Uh, what what's the conclusion? What's the place where you land this uh, airplane here? And he's gone. Nowhere. <laughs> it's no just left in the air. <laughs> He's usually back by now. Oh, there he is. I hear him. I hear something. I hear something. It's trying to connect. Pecker. Here, so I know we're, that's why I was trying to. And it's like four o'clock in the morning for him or something. Yeah. Oh, he just went away. Oh, he's just gone. He's out. Hey, sorry about that. If if, if this happens one more time, I'll uh, I'll just restart the computer. Okay. And that'll take care of whatever's going on with this. But yeah, so sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, okay, so your your question was how how I wrap all this up, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Making sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, <clears throat> I that yeah that brings us right up to the last chapter, chapter sixteen, the final deception. This was where I really got into the whole idea of the apostasy and starting with what apostasy is in a biblical sense, and. You know, we kind of look at it traditionally as just, you know, there's going to be a day where the church is doing pretty good. And then uh, it's it's going to be like a slow decline, kind of like what we're seeing now. And, you know, there's a lot of people that in their traditional thinking think that we're in the apostasy now. And, you know, I mean, I think it might be 
started at least, but I don't think it's going to be this gradual decline that's just going to culminate one day. I mean, we've always had that, you know, we've always had people falling away from the church. So this is something, this is something different. When we look at the whole scope of it and going back to the original languages and all that, it's more sudden. It's, it's more like, like one day the church is how it is. And then one day everything's different (laughs) and it's uh, just this massive uh, falling away. And uh, so it doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail of what causes it, just that it's a deception. The only thing that I can come up with, because since we've already throughout the book established the Nephilim and the UFO connection and all that, you know, I started to think, you know, these UFOs are showing up more and more. And I I show some statistics in the book that that show that uh, it's leading to, to something. I mean, every year it's more of a percentage of increase and it's like well that can't go on forever i mean there if it did there would be a day where it's just constant ufos in the sky so you know it's leading somewhere (laughs) (laughs) so i started thinking well where is it leading you know these uh people these abductees keep saying that uh, the ones that have had conversation with these beings Uh, say it's almost like these beings will brag or boast that there's going to come a day that they're going to reveal themselves. Now, I'm not saying we should put any stock in anything that a fallen angel has to say, and I believe that they are fallen angels masquerading as as aliens, and I give several reasons why uh, throughout the Final Deception chapter. But just the consistency of, of that with their nature all throughout the Bible, that lines up with what could cause... An apostasy. You know, a lot, a lot of people in the church might think it's uh, some sort of false religion that the world will accept, that the world will accept, like maybe Islam or something. And I, I do see Islam as a part of the whole end times thing, but not the catalyst that that starts it all off. Because throughout all, say, six thousand or so years of of history, Satan has always had false religions that he's tried to deceive humanity with. And in our in our days now, I mean, we have so many different religions. It's re, it's ridiculous. If Satan hasn't been able to do it now, you know, who's to say that he's going to do it in the future where they're all going to accept this false religion that already exists on Earth? Now, I believe there will be an acceptance of a false religion, but I believe it's going to be something new, something that comes outside of our sphere of existence, because what else could unite these different religions into one belief system it would have to be something that would seem bigger than even that it would have to be something completely different and unique and um in in the in the world sense you know in our sense we can look back to genesis 6 activity and you know it's not really that unique <laughs> right. i mean uh you know it is in the in the sense that the packaging is different but it's the it's the same old deception that satan's been promulgating the whole time uh, so, but the world's not going to see it that way. So if, if there does come a time where they do decide to reveal themselves and say that they are our alien creators through this pans, panspermia stuff and uh, that they evolved on their own planet and, and all this, I, I would say that would definitely cause a great apostasy because then the people of the world are going to have the, the proof it, right staring at them right right in the face every time somebody has a 
uh, a conversation with one of these beings or, you know, however, however it, it happens, they don't ever seem to question it. They take it as the truth. Uh, that's seen all throughout history, even when people did look at that at them as uh, other gods or whatever in the spiritual sense. If one of these spiritual beings said something to a person, if they if they didn't have you know uh, Christ or if they didn't have God, uh, they just tend to believe it just based on the word of the being, and they don't test it against anything. We see that nowadays in these alien abductees, most of them, like the the grand majority. Usually, if anybody does question it, then it's it's a Christian that happened to have been abducted or something. Also, what's interesting is uh, the only documented cases of anybody ever having power and authority over these things is by using the name of Jesus. So that all right. to me solidifies like, OK, we're dealing with fallen angels here. So I get I get way into that in the in the chapter of the final deception and, and talk about how that's going to all culminate in what's what is going to cause this apostasy and i i don't believe we're too far off i mean there are already people falling away from the church because of this i mean i know a few personally that have heard the what the aliens have to say or what you know i would consider doctrines of devils and they'll go after that and deny jesus over it you know i've, I've witnessed that personally and i mean it's it's kind of horrifying that that's all it takes and they're not even uh the the supposed aliens aren't even really here yet in that sense that they're you know that we can see them at all times and they're in communication with us so how is it going to be when that happens and uh it goes back to preparedness we got to be you know prepared for that kind of thing it might seem ridiculous now but the bible also says in uh proverbs he who answereth a matter before he heareth it uh, it is folly and shame unto him so we're supposed to hear things out if it lines up with scripture, at least accept the possibility or at least file it away for later. So if it does happen, we'll be able to remember and maybe have at least a little bit of preparedness. You know, we shouldn't just uh, throw things out unless it completely contradicts with scripture. Then we can throw it out. But so, uh, yeah, so I, I tie that all together in that chapter. And I, I give a lot of examples through uh, of some deceptions, especially within the past 50 years that the enemy is used, in my opinion, to kind of test us to see how we're going to react. I, I, I uh, look at Roswell as an example of that. You know, I, I don't think Roswell was an accident. I, I think uh, if it wasn't some government thing, and I, I'm not convinced that it was, uh, I believe that it was set up by the enemy in some way to test our reaction to that, to see what we would do. Um, I think Fatima is another example of that. Uh, what happened after Fatima is everybody gathered and worshipped this thing. Now, I know there are people out there that believe this really was Mary. For one thing, uh, you know, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody in their beliefs, but we're told in the Bible that we're not even supposed to be worshipping angels. So we definitely shouldn't be worshipping just human beings, you know, even right. even if she was chosen by God to birth the Messiah, that definitely it still doesn't put her above the Messiah. Right. Uh, so the this fatima apparition did not rebuke the people for worshiping it so that sends up a red a red flag also the apparition said that it would uh it would be there at a certain time the next day and it was an hour late right so, so they're, they're I mean, always late it seems yeah yeah they can't they can't get it together it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean with uh with an angel or with god if he says he's going to be somewhere he's going to be there 
And, you know, sometimes angels get tied up, you know, like in Daniel, but right. the angel didn't tell Daniel beforehand, I'm going to be here at this time. He's, he's just, he just showed up and said, you know, I would have been here earlier, but you know, this other angel kind of had me tied up for a while. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. It doesn't really word it like that, but, <laughs> but uh, about right. yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I look at examples like that and I go through a lot of them in the Bible and I, I think we're being tested by the enemy to see what deception we're going to fall into best because since that Fatima there apparition, there've been a lot of Marian apparitions throughout the world. And the thing about Mary is that Muslims regard her too. And uh, it, it's the only kind of strange spiritual thing where you'll have Christians and Muslims both like worshiping this thing together. And I, I give some examples of that in the book too. So, I think that that ties in with this whole end time, one world religion, one world government, all all this stuff. And I, I think that they're kind of the, the past 50, 60 years, the enemy has kind of been testing the waters to see what deception is going to work best against us. And I, I think he's got a pretty good idea because he seems to be really running with the uh, with the alien deception thing with and then with some merry apparitions here and there to just get the more spiritual people to accept this, too. So. It's right. scary stuff. <laughs> Let me ask you one one last question here as we kind of wrap it up. Uh, where do you see or or do you see any Bible verses that might be referring to the arrival of aliens? Or I mean not real aliens of course, but just this whole deception the 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 day the large mile-wide crafts, you know, hover over the cities and and whatnot, you know, the whole scenario there. Do you see anywhere in, in the in the Bible that could potentially be referring to that event? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I find a few, and they're they're kind of uh, you know cryptic in the sense that if we have a traditional uh, view that we've been told in church or whatever, then we'll we'll probably miss it. But it kind of goes back to uh, the the book of Ezekiel, and and you know I'm not going to get too much into that, but just basically, I, I believe that's the foundation to understand what this is talking about but really in revelation there are a lot of um verses that when we look at it from a literal standpoint then it starts to jump out at you in little ways like um for example well one one uh, verse that god started me with was uh second thessalonians 2 9 which says even him whose coming is after the working of satan with all power and lying wonders when we first look at that it's like okay you know it, it's easy to gloss over but it's that little word all <laughs> that that's that uh god started uh putting my focus on all power and lying wonders so if there's a lie out there, he's going to use it. And uh, taking that back to this whole UFO phenomenon, I'd, I'd have to say, well, that would fit in with that verse. That's going to be something that, you know, if Satan's coming with all power and lying wonders, that's definitely a representation of power that he has. And it's definitely a lie. We can go to Revelation 13, 13 through 14, which uh, is talking about the uh, Antichrist, false prophet, all, all, all that. Uh, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, and they should make an image to the beast, which had a wound by the sword and did live. So that's talking about the uh, false prophet there. 
we kind of look at that as that, you know, he's just going to open his arms and maybe lightning will come down or like a column of fire. And, you know, it could be that. But when we look at fire and the source of fire, uh, you know, I'm taken back to the prophets of Baal and Elijah says, you know, if you're able to call down fire, you know, you basically, you know, he set up a little contest there. Prophets of Baal, you call to your God and to burn this up and I'll call to mine. We'll see who's, who, you know, whose God can. And, you know, of course, the most high was, a, you know, did it. But the, the prophets of Baal, they weren't able to get their their God um, to call down fire. So it doesn't seem like he was able to in that sense. I kind of look at this as more of a technological thing, that this is going to be some sort of effect of these UFOs, whether it, you know, some kind of beam or something. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but that's kind of how I look at it there because I can't, I can't really see how it could be a literal fire. Like what, what changed, you know, how is he able to do this now if he wasn't able to before? So that's, um, that's another example. Also, Revelation 9, 6 says, And in those days shall men seek death and not find it, shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And this is talking uh, about after these locust things <laughs> come out of the bottomless pit. Well, when we think of who's in the bottomless pit, it's those who um, committed that sin in the first place to create the Nephilim. So there's a connection there. And uh, they these locusts, these locust beings, come out of the... Uh, bottomless pit and torment men and all this, but it says that the men aren't able to die. So what could cause that? I, you know, I believe it's going to be uh, a um, an effect of this mark of the beast thing that there's going to be something where they're going to be able to live longer and not be able to die quite as easily or maybe not even at all. It's uh, Satan's counterfeit immortality in a sense. You know, Satan's, he, he's never had an original thought in his life. Everything that he has he's taken from God and twisted it. So, you know, Satan knows that we, we as Christians are going to be given a new body and we're going to be immortal and eternal in, in that sense on the other side of eternity. So Satan, all he's got is a technological way to create a false sense of that. And he's, I mean, he's been promulgating that since the garden. So uh, we see a, we see a connection there to that in the technological sense. And I, I believe that that technology, we're, I mean, we're not, there yet you know we don't have immortality in the sense yet it could come through the form of transhumanism or something like that but i i believe it's more likely given the the return of these beings and especially with descriptions like the locusts and then the 200 million horsemen and all all this if we throw out our traditions that don't line up with scripture and take the bible for the literal book that it is it makes a lot more sense that this would be referring to this return of the Nephilim or these fallen angels masquerading as space aliens that have come to help us in, you know, in our time of need and all this and that want to give us these great gifts of technology and immortality through this uh, Mark of the Beast system. And of course, the world's not going to see it as Mark of the Beast, but we who are prepared, who are preparing now and are studying up in a, on this now and at, at least can accepted as a possibility you know and I, I say all throughout the book don't take my word for any of this you know I'm, I'm human too look into the bible and study this yourself with god <laughs> and I, I say that over and over again so that that's where i see it and i you know i encourage the the reader of my book or you know the listener of your show to go and search out 
these verses too. And I mean, they're all over. I, I give a lot more examples in the book that we probably don't have time to get into now, but uh, it, it just all goes back to, you know, it shouldn't be taken just by my word alone. Just like when I was, uh, when I was a child, I shouldn't have taken the word of my pastor without, without first um, testing it against the word of God. So same with me, same here, you know, just leave it up to God and he'll show you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there you go. Very awesome. Well, thank you, Josh Peck, for coming on the show. We really enjoyed this uh, conversation. Quite a doozy, but um, <laughs> I'm just so excited that we got to go through this. Josh Peck, everyone, his new book is Disclosure, Unveiling Our Role in the Secret War of the Ancients. Josh Peck, where can we get the book and what's your website? And give us all your details here. Sure. My website is www dot mini study ministry dot com uh it's a ministry my wife and i uh, got started recently and it's it's all about just providing uh study materials for at-home bible uh studies or maybe people who have you know actual day jobs and like myself and can't don't can't afford the time to become a full-time biblical researcher it's it's just these uh short study materials that can be used. Uh, so they're mini studies. <laughs> so it's ministry.com. I have my book up on there or you can get it at, uh, on Amazon. And also, I, you know, I, I always love hearing from people and I'm always up to talk and discuss and hear out people's questions and comments. So, you know, if you have a question or a comment, feel free to email me. My email is joshpeckdisclosure at gmail.com. Uh, I'm always up for hearing from people. I'm always on Facebook. You know, I'm online throughout most of the day so <laughs> all right very cool well, very cool uh there you have it everybody make sure to check out that website and shoot him an email with your questions comments and just uh general high fivery and uh <laughs> <laughs> i like that. so one more th yeah there you go so one more time josh thanks for coming on the show and hopefully we'll have you on again soon yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This this was a lot of fun. All right. So there you have it, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Canary Cry Radio. And until next time, think outside the cage. That was, that was my own soundtrack. Take that on there. <laughs> we, we have. Yeah, We've done stuff like we that. We do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on StumbleUpon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage. It's like everything right now.
I know that's just the dubstep nation, man. Yeah, it's funny. I it's it's so weird because I remember being in, uh, you know, just taking my my Berkeley music classes, and, uh-huh. you know, because you know I have my master's in music production and technology, so they were teaching us all that stuff. And I remember thinking like, this is stupid. Why do I have to? Why do I have to learn how to do filters? No one's gonna ever, you know, this kind of music is never gonna be big. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it was like 2008, you know. Yeah. And now it's like every song is like. <laughs> it's actually kind of cool. I do like it, but it is cool. I had a whole dubstep uh, phase. phase I went through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're younger too. I listen to it and I'm like, ah. Oh, you youngsters and your <laughs> fancy robot music. That, that was you. That's, <laughs> that's that was, you, Gus. That's me. That's, yeah. what, that's what you sound like to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> old, old man. Old, old Gons. That's old your new man. name. Old, old Gons. Mr. Gons. <laughs> <laughs>